So this is the short introduction that I'll record for the podcast episode on contracts 2.0. The rough idea of this is that BDSM contracts are fundamentally unfit for purpose or in more simple terms, they fucking suck. And a radical rethink and overhaul of both the intention behind them and what it is they're designed to create and the ideal format and structure for that was necessary to solve these massive fucking problems, which otherwise, well, no, it's not inaccurate to say that I've seen poorly written contracts or badly implemented contracts destroy otherwise perfectly happy and healthy relationships. Something had to be done about that, so I did something about it. Now, full credit for the idea doesn't go to myself. This is a particularly good one, uh, and as a good friend of mine that I spoke to about the format and structure on this, so he deserves part of the credit. But the gist of it is that multiple page, highly complex contracts suck really fucking bad. And the better version is a single keystone statement that uniquely defines the aspirational intent of the relationship. Most of the time I use honor thy master, Another one that I've heard is be a joyful addition. You will come up with one based on the nature of your relationship and what it is that you intend to create. Followed by usually between two to four deal breakers. You can have slightly more than that, but you probably want to get them down to as a small number as possible. And those are the things that if they happen would cause the relationship to end. So things like having unprotected sex with someone and then lying about it, that's a deal breaker for me. Things like hard drug usage, which I define as anything other than weed, LSD, hallucinogenics, or ecstasy. You know, So those are some of my deal breakers. You will have your own. Think very carefully about your deal breakers because there's a lot of things that you wouldn't like to happen in a relationship, but that wouldn't necessarily cause the end of a relationship. And by definition, anything that doesn't cause the relationship to end can be recovered from given time. Now you'll notice I don't put anything in here about how someone should make your fucking coffee or how they should suck your dick or how they should greet guests in your home. Those are all expressed as preferences additional preferences. This is the contract. The contract consists of the keystone statement and the deal breakers. Everything else is nice to have, but these are the must-haves. Everything else is, well, you know, if you don't serve coffee the way that I expect you to serve it to my guests, I'll be disappointed in you, but it won't end the relationship. You know. Also, a note here as well, which I cover later on in this podcast, I have a very strong preference now for not punishing people, and in fact, for coming up with specific dummy rules to allow people to break those when they want to communicate that they want to be corrected. So making up almost fake rules about things that don't really matter as a kind of canary in the coal mine, so to speak, as as a reciprocal method of communication. I was inspired by that by the idea of certain people I know well enjoying relationships in which authority is felt. And if the relationship is perfectly designed or well designed, and there's a high degree of mutual compatibility and alignment of character, then you won't actually have that many real conflicts. 
as long as you're willing to sit down and talk it out and as long as it's not a deal breaker, you can eventually, usually, come to a compromise. If both parties are willing and one party, usually the submissive, isn't trying to rules lawyer the dominant, using a long and overly complex and often mutually contradictory contract, like a contract 1.0, hence the necessity of brevity in a contract 2.0. But those are preferences, those are things that you can live without. Now, ideally, the relationship that forms from these contracts should be engaged in by people who are both already independent. So there are three phases, and they cannot be skipped. They must be done in order. Phase one is dependent. When you're born, you're dependent. You rely upon other people to survive. Phase two is when you get from phase one to phase two, you become independent. You're capable of meeting all of your fundamental needs by yourself. This includes the need for food, shelter, you know, you have a job or a source of income, and you live a happy and contented and fulfilling life by yourself, or you're at least capable of doing that for a period of at least three months, just to be certain that you can actually do that by yourself. Once you have accomplished the level of independence, which usually means eliminating any nice guy tendencies, doing a lot of work on yourself, making your needs a priority, adopting the core mental health beliefs that you'll find in the resources folder, establishing strong self-care routines, working on your ability to communicate, massively improving your acceptance of self, specifically forgiving yourself for the mistakes that you've made in your life, then you're ready to begin an interdependent relationship with another person who is also independent and who has also done that work on themselves. And the, the real joy, the real juice, the real majesty and pleasure and fulfillment of a DS relationship that is well-designed comes from an interdependent relationship. One of the major problems that a contract 1.0 doesn't even address is that oftentimes DS relationships are formed between two dependent individuals. The dominant needs in those situations, oftentimes, an external focus for their control. And that can lead to the problem where a dominant is not doing any work on themselves, but constantly trying to fix their problems by changing another person. And oftentimes a submissive is out of control or incapable of ruling their own life in a mature and independent way and they require someone to step in and make fundamental life choices for them. There's nothing wrong with that. The danger is when they need that, when they cannot function healthily in a society, in a reasonable, healthy society, without that, because then it leads to dependency issues, which inherently limit, not that there's anything wrong with them, but they inherently limit the joy that can be achieved in a relationship. The healthiest relationships, the most intense, most compatible, most beautiful relationships come from two fully independent people choosing to consciously engage in an interdependent relationship for a purpose that is larger than themselves, raising children, accomplishing a particular goal, creating something larger than any individual person could create. So many people I see, their problems are caused by the desire to jump straight from dependence to interdependence. And you cannot go do, you can't do that. You, you can't 
jump from dependence to interdependence without having gone through the necessary stage of independence. You must be able to make yourself happy. You must remind yourself constantly that you are responsible for making yourself happy. If you cannot be happy without her, you will never be able to be happy with her. This is the iron law of relationships that I've come up with because there are no exceptions to it. If you cannot meet your fundamental human needs without her, you will never be able to be happy with her. And so because contracts 2.0 are a function or a part of designing a good DS relationship, it's necessary to talk about those sorts of things as well. There's obviously also the designing your ideal partner exercise, which I'll cover in a future episode, which is a huge part of selecting an appropriate, available, both physically and emotionally and sexually, and compatible partner. You need to be filtering out people that are dependent. You're welcome to play with them and you're welcome to fuck them, but I would not advise investing yourself or your valuable time and energy and even if you don't think it has value, it does. You have value, even if you don't think you do. Do not invest those things in someone that is incapable of having a fulfilling relationship with you. If an independent person gets into a relationship with someone who is dependent, it becomes a dependency and therefore limits either one or both of the parties involved. A strong focus on self-development is necessary, but as a dominant, your job is to take care of yourself as a submissive. Their job is to take care of themselves. It is also very necessary to be specific about the control and authority that you, uh, I apologize to my European friends, but that you cede, that you C-E-D-E, that you give up uh, in very specific areas of your life. And that's where most people in those contract 1.0, they make the mistake of, trying to specify exactly what they don't want rather than focusing on the things that they actually do want. The keystone statement is the key to that. The analogy that I like to use, and you'll hear me mention it later in this episode, is that of an archway. Two pillars, strong and tall and equal in height, supported by three stones on either side, forming an arch with a keystone in the center, which is the triangle-shaped one that binds it all together. A great relationship, a truly interdependent relationship, is an archway that allows you to walk through that archway to an entirely new world of intensity and depth. I'm currently in a number of those relationships, and I can tell you from personal experience, they are unlike anything that you have experienced. If you haven't tried this, if you haven't tasted this, this is what I want for you. An intelligent articulate, beautifully evolved relationship, not in the sense of it being soft and gentle 100% of the time, but the intensity, the connection that's possible when both of you are fully capable of living happily without each other. You are responsible for your happiness. You are responsible for making yourself happy. Now, there are obviously needs that you cannot meet by yourself. The need for touch and companionship, the need for intimacy and connection. The need for touch particularly is a tricky one because it obviously implicitly requires another person. But you can meet those needs to the point casually and socially where they're not 
deleterious to your decision-making processes, where they're not affecting you in such a, a way or to such a degree that it's negatively affecting your ability to make informed decisions. Essentially, if you cannot live happily without her, then you will never be happy with her. So with all of those essentially core ideas in mind, enjoy this episode. Please take something from it. And I will very likely add additions to the end of this and change the title in the podcast to reflect that it's been updated with various versions because I imagine this topic in particular, given its huge potential impact and its massive appeal to every BDSM practitioner, will likely require some revision and additions over time. Obviously, for more content, you can find that on the website at mindkink.net. So after I recorded the introduction to this topic, I thought to myself, it's probably best if I put a much more condensed executive summary at the start. So a contract 2.0 is a vast improvement over a contract 1.0. The structure will be described shortly and also how to actually create one. So the structure is a keystone statement. Now you can find templates for this in the resources folder with many written examples of what keystone statements should look like. And also tell you shortly how to come up with your own. A keystone statement defines the aspirational goals of the relationship. It is what both of you are moving towards consciously, intentionally with what you are building together. So honor thy master is a simple act, a simple sentence that guides every action, every thought, is what I'm doing as a submissive, honoring my master. Be a joyful addition. Is everything that I'm doing being a joyful addition? Now that obviously has a small downside in that it can often lead to self-censure or self-censorship. Now, it's important to both be honest, to acknowledge your flaws as a submissive and as a dominant, and to consistently work on them and to not shy away from that. You must not look away for very long. So, keystone statement, couple of deal breakers. Now, you can come up with your own keystone statement. This is often the step that will happen last. So, your deal breakers are actually quite simple. What you do is as a dominant, as a submissive, you write down the things that you absolutely must have in a relationship. Now, this is not your nice-to-haves or your, you know, I really hope that he has a five-bedroom McMansion on his own private island. It's like, these are the things that I cannot live without. These are the things that, more specifically, if they were to occur, the relationship would end. So your deal breakers are not your hard limits. They're not things that you would like to have. They're not They require some exploration of yourself. They require that you have some experiences to know what to avoid. Now you can read the examples in the resources folder and, and know for yourself whether that applies to you. you know, for example, my rules around hard drug usage might not be a problem for you, right? I have my own reasons for that and you will have your own reasons for your deal breakers. 
Now, you know something is a deal breaker when there is absolutely no exception to it under any circumstances, right? Like if Scarlett Johansson from Iron Man 2 in that black leather cat suit walked up to me tomorrow and said, I will marry you and suck your dick forever, but I have a cocaine habit and I'm never going to give that up. I will never compromise on that. That will be a part of my life forever. I would say no. That's how you know it's a deal breaker. There is no reasonable exception to any time it would need to happen. Right? So, for example, if someone had unprotected sex with a partner of mine, so if my partner allowed themselves to be fucked without protection from STIs or STDs, and then did not tell me about that, that would be a deal breaker. Because that would be indicative of someone deliberately placing me in danger. Right? So you're not going to have that many deal breakers. You will be able to memorize all of your deal breakers, word for word, which is why these contracts are so awesome. Because in the old way of doing things, you had a dozen different rules and they were all given equal importance. No. Nope, 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 nope. This. Your deal breakers are the most important. Your keystone statement is what you both aspire to create in the relationship or what you, what you aspire to embody, right? I've been experimenting with a number of potential keystone statements for myself. Things like higher or always upwards or something like that. But they will come from within you through a process of questioning and exploration and discovery, then your deal breakers. And then everything else I regard as a preference. How I like my coffee, preference. How I like my dick sucked, preference. How I like girls to find other girls for me, preference, right? Those are all things that I can live without, but I cannot live with someone who has sex with someone else unprotected, right? And who doesn't tell me about it, that kind of thing. Now, obviously, if that other person is fluid bonded and, you know, blah, 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 that's fine, right? It means I have to trust that other person as much as I trust my immediate partner. But that's a decision I have to make. Informed consent is very important. But if someone lies to me about that, they take away my ability to make an informed decision. That's non-negotiable for me, right? So you'll have a handful of deal breakers. Some of them you can pull from the template in the resources folder if you like. Some of them will be unique to your situation. You might not be that fussed about people having unprotected sex. I mean, maybe it's because you're not intending to have sex with that person. Or maybe you never want to have sex with that person. Maybe you're on, other side of the, on another side of the world and it's just not a physical possibility. So that thing won't ever come into play. Now, obviously, the deal breakers that you map out won't be complete in the sense that you haven't gone through a full range of human experience with that person or even on your own necessarily so you might not know some of the deal breakers that you don't know that you have so if one of those deal breakers happens one time and then that person discovers that it's a deal breaker i often will say well now we've figured that out now it's a deal breaker if you ever do that again our relationship is over right Say, for example, I wasn't, I didn't know about the drug limit that I had, right? 
And then all of a sudden someone did cocaine and they told me about it and I was like, wow, okay, I'm having some strong feelings about this. I'm having a very strong response to this. This is a deal breaker for me. I would think about it for a couple of days. I would say, this is, this is non-negotiable. I cannot be in a relationship with someone that does that. Now that you know that, if you do that again, I will have to end the relationship, right? You don't end the relationship because they do something. Well, obviously you can do whatever the fuck you want, but I would not end a relationship if they do something once that you didn't know was a deal breaker because they hadn't consented to it or agreed to it in the contract, right? Now, again, the problem here is that these deal breakers can be, they can get kind of clogged up, right? So you want to keep them to a minimal number. All of these will come from inside of you and from your own life experiences. I have things that inform my decisions around unprotected sex and drug usage, hard drug usage. I am super fine with casual drug usage. I literally could not give a shit. But those are my limits. Anyone that wants to be in a emotionally committed relationship with me will have to abide by those limits formally or informally. And then everything else is a preference. Now, the Book of Master and the Submissive Operator's Manual that I've developed um, inform your preferences. And I like to group them under category for easy reference. So things like eating and service, you know, eating and hosting, how I like this done, how I like that done. Those are all preferences. They're grouped under the category of eating and hosting in a document I have on my computer. But at the same time, I'm not going to kick up a fuss if that's not done that way. I can live without that. I can laugh, I can smile, I can get the fuck over it because it's not a deal breaker. Anything short of a deal breaker is forgivable. You can work through that given time. So the actual process of coming up with a contract like this would look very similar to the following. You are in a great relationship with someone for a minimum of three to five months and you decide that you want to be more committed to each other. Right? She's independent. She's capable of living a happy, full, complete, and perfectly satisfying life without you. And you are independent. You're capable of living a happy, full, satisfying, and complete life without her. But you both make the conscious choice as independent people to build something together. So then you sit down and you write out your deal breakers in a completely uncensored way. Now, you don't have to share this fight, this initial draft with her because you're trying to encourage your unconscious mind to be as expressive and honest as possible. And hopefully after being with someone for five months, you can be honest with them about who you really are. If not, you either need to work on self-acceptance, which I've outlined the process for elsewhere, but it basically looks like writing down the things that you are or that you want and then practicing saying them to yourself out loud, then practicing saying them to yourself out loud in the mirror and then sharing them with a trusted person. That is the fastest and simplest way to work on your self-acceptance. You can also listen to the Worth recordings and the How to Win recordings from Rick Smith Hypnosis, which you should be able to find by Googling him. They're absolutely excellent, and I highly recommend them to basically everyone. Actually, everyone. I recommend them to everyone. They're like a vaccination against negative thought and behavioral patterns. So you've decided to be in a contract 2.0 with someone. You sit down, you write out your deal breakers in a totally uncensored way. They sit down, they write out their deal breakers in a totally uncensored way. The deal breaker section describes the things that you don't want. And the keystone statement kind of pulls you towards what you do want. 
Look at the example in the, in the resources folder and you'll get a better idea of what I'm talking about here. So then you combine your deal breakers and you agree to abide by hers and she agrees to abide by yours and you find that the, some of them overlap and some of them are exactly the same. So you combine them, merge them together. And then you do not jump into a six and a half month contract. You jump into a three hour contract. You put that contract on for three hours on a Saturday afternoon or a weekend where you've got plenty of time and you agree to abide by it. And that's when you discover a lot of your preferences. Now, as a dominant, I highly encourage introspective exercises. And one of the surprising benefits of the Book of Master is that it functions as an extremely effective introspective exercise. How do I want this thing done? How do I want this thing done? You know. Now, again, all of this will change depending on the nature of your relationship. But there are things that are simple, like I like my coffee made a particular way. Right? I'm not fussed about how someone gives it to me. I had a girl years ago that used to serve it on her knees. And that additional technical challenge of balancing while she was going from standing to kneeling was something she found satisfying. I don't give a shit about that. I really don't. Just hand me the fucking coffee. Right? But it satisfied her. So that, that put that in my preferences. But it wasn't something that she had to do every single time. Excessive ritualization of behavior is constraining. It is limiting. Some ritualization of behavior is liberating and freeing, but there is a point where it becomes excessive. That's unique to every individual and unique to the nature of the relationship you create. Then I would do that relationship. I would, I would switch that contract on for three hours and I would turn it off at the end. Then I would wait a minimum of a couple of days. Then I would do it for a half day, right? 12 lunchtime until you fall asleep that night. Then I would wait a week, right? Each time you are progressively, gently sinking more deeply into a conscious, intentional engagement between two independent people. Now, the longer the relationship contract is in effect, generally speaking, the gentler the average intensity of it will be. So you can maintain an extremely intense DS relationship for a period of time. But as time goes on, you'll need to do things like shower or shave or go to work and real life will need to be taken into account. Uh, Arcane, I can't recall the name of his website, something to do with ravens. But uh, yeah, Arcane wrote an excellent book on a particularly ritualized style of DS relationship, uh, Igniting the Fire, I-G-N-I-T-I-N-G, The Fire, by Arcane, A-R-C-A-N-E. It's quite good. I would get the Kindle version as I'm not a big fan of physical books anymore now that I travel so much. It's hard to keep them kind of lugging them around with me. But even he acknowledges at several points throughout his work that it's very difficult to maintain a 24-7 dynamic at a high degree of intensity without it becoming deleterious to the functioning of a normal human relationship. So the average intensity of that dynamic will tend to mellow out, so to speak, the longer that it's maintained, which is why I always and have always maintained the necessity of long breaks to restore a sense of independence. The longest that I would have an active contract is three months. Then I would take a minimum of one month off. So, you know, do it for a day, do it for a week, wait some time, Iterate, discover that you have more deal breakers or less deal breakers or, you know, update, improve, go again, 
don't do what I did when I first started out, which was basically, you know, here's a contract of things that I think are pretty cool. Let's sign this, no end date, no expiration date, no escape clause. Tremendous amount of personal suffering for myself and my partner. And I regret that very much to this day. And that was several years ago now, longer even than that. So always have an end date on your contract, always. Of course, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And you should just suffix all of my sentences with you can do whatever the fuck you want, but this is how I would do it. And the reason that I would do it is because I have made more mistakes than you have ever even tried. What's the quote from Jordan? I've missed more shots than you've ever taken. Simple. So learn from my suffering. There's no need for you to experience it yourself unless you're, you know, into that kind of thing. So I would never do a contract for longer than three months. Then I would have a minimum of a month off. Now I wouldn't like break up with her, move into separate houses. We would still keep doing the same things we were doing. We just, there wouldn't be the contract enforcing that. I would allow her a greater degree of freedom. I took this concept from Henry David Thoreau uh, in his book, Walden, essentially to summarize in a very brutalistic way, he goes and lives in the woods and then he discovers that simplicity is good and then he goes and lives in the city and he discovers that socialization and complexity are good. But the real discovery, the real takeaway from me from that book was that it's neither state is ideal and the human adapts to one or the other and its excesses and shortcomings fairly quickly. So the ideal life is moving from the ideal relationship, I should say, is moving from one to the other. So you have an intense DS relationship for three months at the longest, and then you take a minimum of one third of that time off, maybe even six weeks. So three month contract, the contract ends, you celebrate it, you get a glass of wine, put on a nice steak, you get a pot roast it and going in the oven, drink some mead, have a great old time, celebrate everything you've learned about yourselves and each other, wake up the next morning, probably still end up doing the exact same things, but the contract is not in effect. Right? Give yourself a break. Give her more freedom during that time. Now, obviously, you're both still subject to the rules. For example, if you're both living together and you're in a monogamous relationship, taking a break from the DS side of things doesn't mean that you can go out and fuck other people or that she can go out and fuck other people if you're in a monogamous relationship. But the idea of contracts that extend infinitely or even contracts that are renewed on a yearly basis, that is too long. That might have worked in the past. I have not seen it work since. I highly advise a three month maximum contract term and then a minimum of a one month off. And then you can rewrite it, you can change it, you can deepen it, you can intensify it, you can you know, add a few things into your preferences and add a few things into your book of master and add a few things into your submissive operator's manual and go again. It's that iteration, it's that looping that allows you to go deeper and deeper and deeper every single time. And we see this with hypnokink quite often as well. Someone sets up a scene and they drop them in with one induction, they go through the scene and they come out again and they go, well, that was fun. The best way to do it is to kind of give them a taste test. You know, you do a five minute compressed version of the whole scene at the start. So then they become familiar with it. They become trusting, they become able to more completely let go of conscious control and trust their unconscious mind to protect them, to keep them safe and to guide them towards those mutually desirable and previously agreed upon and negotiated intentions and outcomes from the session. 
for seam structuring, see the seven questions, a section in Anton Fuhrman's excellent book, The Heart of Dominance. And I highly advise everyone at least be aware of that framework. If not, well, to be honest with you, I would say that everyone should be using it. It's fucking brilliant. Seven clear, precise questions. It's genius. I use them for planning all of my scenes. I don't occasionally, I do occasionally not use all of the questions because they're not always relevant, but uh, I do at least think to myself, this question isn't relevant, I'm going to skip this one. But honestly, even if the answer is no, it won't involve any other people in any way, still it's good to consider these things. It's excellent. Perfect practice makes perfect, as Igor Ledochovsky says. Although I'm sure he's not the first person to say that. And that's how I would continue it on and off for as long as both of you want to be in that relationship. Now, another thing that's interesting is that you need to add in something to a contract 2.0 that allows you to end the relationship. So you need to define the relationship's ending and how that will work. Stephen Covey talks about beginning with the end in mind, and that's very useful. However, I actually prefer to write a contract like the way that one of those questions from Anton Fuhrman's book outlines. How will this begin and how will this end? Because a scene is a mini relationship and a relationship is a long scene, functionally speaking. So how will this end? How will it end? Write it out in detail, how it will end. And then make sure there is something in your contract 2.0 to describe how it will end. At three months time, we will renegotiate this contract. If both of us want to do it again, we will extend the contract or you know, we will go into the contract again for another three months after a six week cooling off period so that we can both just chill the fuck out, figure out who we are. Because being so intensely bonded to someone as being in a 24 seven DS relationship, they will change you. I mean, a lot of submissives feel like this is the big draw card for them is being changed, but being around that submissive will change you as a dominant. You will become more risk adverse you will become gentler. You need time away from that relationship to rediscover and reinvigorate yourself and that aggressive masculine edge before you consciously choose to go back into that DS relationship, which is why I've always been a huge proponent of women having lots of deep, meaningful relationships with their friends. You know, for women, that often means three or four really close girlfriends. For guys, it often means the same thing. I've always been a huge proponent of men having strong support networks of not the sex that they are sexually attracted to. Well, I guess for bisexual guys, it might be a bit difficult, but, you know, or bisexual women, by extension. But, uh, you know, someone that you can be completely honest, groups of people, a group of people that you can be completely honest with and about and to. A very valuable support mechanism for helping to remind you of who you are. But there is a certain level of subsumation of personality that occurs when two people are entering consciously from a state of independence into a deeply interdependent relationship based on a very high degree of mutual compatibility, sexual intensity, erotic charge. You will take on personality attributes of each other unconsciously and you need some time apart to separate the two of you back into who you are as individuals. And of course, throughout the entire relationship, you should be doing things by yourself sometimes. You should, as a guy, go on, you know, guy dates, hang out with your mates, you know, play video games at his place and stay the night and get pizza and 
watch movies and, and she should be going out and getting her nails done and getting massages and hanging out with the girlfriends. You do not need to live in each other's pockets. It is not healthy, right? Have your own life even while you are intrinsically bound to another for a brief, intense period of time. You have your own life. She has her own life. I highly encourage this. Many, many dominants have no problem with this at all. The blind spot they have is that they don't do it themselves. They say, you're a submissive. I'll arrange for you to go to submissive events and make friends with other submissives. And I will have your girlfriends come over for dinner one night. And, you know, I'll just chill out upstairs and you guys can have the run of the house. And, you know, I've done that, right? However, the mistake I made and learned from my mistakes. My dad told me this when I was very young. He said, son, a smart man learns from his mistakes. And a smarter man learns as well from the mistakes of others so that he doesn't need to make them himself necessarily. So be sure that you do for yourself. You treat yourself with the same unconditional love and self-acceptance as you have always treated others. If you are arranging a girl's night for your submissive, you should already have organized a guy's night for you. That's generally how I structure a DS relationship. So. I recorded these episodes over a period of a couple of weeks. Um, I hope they all kind of make coherent sense. The The most illuminating thing will be to look at the template in the resources folder. And uh, then you can loop back through this audio whenever you like and get a gist on how to fill this out. How to The end goal of this is to have a keystone statement, a handful of deal breakers, and then if you choose to, preferences that outline how you like things done in a way that you prefer them done, but they are just that, preferences. They're not rules. I don't believe in rules. You have deal breakers, you have preferences. The purpose of both of them is clearly defined several times throughout this podcast audio. Rules rules should only exist in this the circumstance that you have a submissive that needs to occasionally feel a greater degree of your authority and control over her and she needs to be put back in her place. So you create fake rules about shit that doesn't actually matter to you so that she can violate those rules as a way of communicating that she wants to be punished. Now this is a perfectly valid way of running a relationship. I've done this multiple times myself and it works extremely well. It's a little bit like the sacrificial anode in a water heater, right? It's like a canary in a coal mine. I got the idea from this, from watching a YouTube video where a pet owner had taught a dog to use like these speak and spell buttons. Like you, it would walk over it and hit the button and the, the button would say a word and it allowed the dog to communicate. The dog didn't understand the word, but it understood when it hit this button, the owner would open the back door for it. Or when it hit this button, it, uh, would get water or food. Dogs should always have water available to them at all times, but you know what I mean, right? You know, or pat me, right? The dog didn't know what the words were, but the dog had been given a massive sense of empowerment by having an ability to communicate in an unarticulate and clear way what its needs were. It is so important for a submissive to have this. So obviously it's necessary to be in a relationship with someone that's capable of articulating their needs and you can teach them how to do that, but you're not responsible for them doing that. Be patient, understand that everyone's imperfect, right? If they don't know how to tell the truth, that's a problem. But here's how you do it. Essentially, I will never lie to a submissive or a person I care about ever, under any circumstances. I will never lie to them. However, 
If they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, I will tell them. If, I, if they ask me a question that I cannot answer because I'm keeping the confidence of someone else, I will say, I cannot answer that. I may occasionally say, I cannot answer that, but you should go and talk to John Smith directly and he can tell you more about that. But I will just say, I cannot answer that. I can't answer that. And if they're a good friend, they'll respect your integrity. But I will never lie to someone. That's very important. So I always say, you know, it's a preference that you don't lie to me, but uh, there are certain circumstances under which I would accept someone lying to me, provided that they had a very, very good reason for it. So it's not a deal breaker for me. Although it may become one in the future, depending on the seriousness of the relationship I'm engaged with in that person and the seriousness of the consequences of that lie. I find it very difficult to be injured by people's actions unless I know for a hundred percent fact that they have done that with the intention of hurting me. I, um, I've become much more forgiving than I see other people being. Probably because I'm not as insecure as they are. But yes, self-acceptance. Help other people to find it by being an example of accepting yourself. Forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've made in the past. Do whatever you can to make them right and then forgive yourself and move on. So with that in mind, let's lead into the sessions that I've recorded on how to actually do this. I'm probably going to loop through this information a lot because I will cover it over and over again to make sure people that take notes from these have time. You will find templates, as I've mentioned several times, in the resources folder. This is a big topic and it dovetails very nicely into the content that I've been developing on structuring and timing and the process of forming a healthy, maximally intense, maximally compatible DS relationship dynamic for mutual satisfaction. Buckle up folks, this is gonna be a really good one. So today I'm gonna to teach you about something I've been working on for a while, which I'm calling Contracts 2.0, because it represents a fundamental and revolutionary rethink in how contracts in a DS relationship or a BDSM dynamic, or I guess between two people that are exploring things sexually function. Now, I'm gonna give you the outline up first, and then I'm gonna talk about it in more detail, and then I'm gonna give you a big, long, extremely ranty list of reasons why modern DS contracts suck so hard, and you should replace them with this version. So let's get stuck into it. The structure of a contract 2.0 is very, very simple. It is about a paragraph in length. It consists of a keystone statement, and then a small, extremely, well-defined number of deal breakers and that's it no several pages now for those of you that are curious I actually have a section in the resources folder where I've gathered up several different not just examples but types of contracts so there are uh, agreements on this there's there's a, a master slave contract which is like 20 pages there are contracts that you can buy that are 50 pages that are florid and elegant and beautiful and no doubt very satisfying to the people that choose to abide by them, but the structure of a contract 2.0 is radically different. It is, as you can tell, not several pages in length. It is not waffly or imprecise. It is laser focused. Every single word is chosen carefully. And I'll give you 
word for word examples in the resources folder as well as uh, in the show notes. I'll put my whole current contract up there for you. Now, let's talk about the actual structure of it. So the keystone statement is the single most important part of the contract. Now I have to give credit to a good friend of mine because the idea for this podcast episode came out of a conversation that he and I had. So you know you're out there, buddy, and I know you're listening. Thank you. But a keystone statement is very, very simple. It is, it is the most distilled, the most pure essence of the nature of the relationship in one sentence or less. Now, by one sentence or less, I mean literally my keystone statement is honor thy master. Now, whatever your keystone statement is, it needs to be short and it needs to be an aspirational, not necessarily inspirational, although obviously it can be as well, but aspirational goal. It needs to be something that cannot be achieved, but can always be used as a benchmark, as a standard, as a, something to aspire to, right? Then underneath that, you have all your deal breakers. Now, your deal breakers are really simple, and the, the, this is how you normally do it. In an ordinary DS relationship contract, you talk about the things that you want, and you th- talk about the things that you don't want. And then I thought, well, if you follow the example of Socrates, if we strip away everything that isn't true, you're left with truth right? So, and out of those conversations with that friend of mine, this idea was born. I have to say though, in fairness, it was mostly his idea. But uh, what you do with these is a deal breaker is anything that if it was to happen, would fundamentally change the nature of the relationship to the point where it would be unrecognizable. A deal breaker in short is the reasons that you would end the relationship. So with that in mind, you can leave behind all of the fluff and nonsense about how you like things done. What those things go into what I think of as preferences or policies. Those are not ironclad. We must follow these at all times. If you don't, there'll be punishment. They're more like preferences and they integrate much more elegantly into a operant conditioning training sort of routine with, with hypnosis as a, as a conditioning as a part of that process because you don't punish people so much for doing things wrong. Now, there is an adjunct to this where you can set up specific rules that are supposed to be broken, um, but they're not deal breakers. So this is the core of the contract is those two sections, your, your keystone statement and then your deal breakers. And then I'll talk a bit later on about policies and preferences as well. The keystone statement is the core of the relationship. Now, Honor thy master encompasses everything. It encompasses how I want them to act, how I want them to behave, how I want them to think and feel. Now, obviously, and this is a very important aspect that we'll cover more when it comes to punishment, is that you cannot punish someone for something that they can't consciously control. And in a sense, and it's somewhat ironic that the choice of language is, it would be unconscionable for you to punish someone in an effective way for something that they have no control over. So say someone doesn't have an arm, well, you can't punish them for not having an arm. You could correct them for not having the foresight to, you know, not stick their hand in that thing that was obviously going to result in their arm being cut off. 
but you can't in good conscience punish them for something they can't control consciously. So, keystone statements. Another one that I've found recently upon conversation with a very intelligent and articulate, extremely accomplished, uh, the word submissive seems almost too limiting, but receptive supporter, perhaps, is the phrase, be a joyful addition in the sense that you want everything you do as a submissive to be a joyful addition to their, your partner's life. So those are two great examples. I'll put all this in the show notes so you don't have to worry about writing anything down now, but those are two good examples of keystone statements. Honor thy master. Now, I also really like the Olympic motto or variations thereof, you know, higher, faster, stronger, that kind of thing, but it's often a little imprecise. It doesn't contain any information about the actual nature of the relationship. But honor thy master does. Everything you do should honor me. Everything that you do should inspire the women around you to want to be more like you and the men around you to want to own you slash fuck you. Honor thy master. Now, obviously you come up with your own keystone for the statement, but it needs to be short, it needs to be sharp. And essentially what you do is you ask yourself this question over and over, right? What is this relationship really about? If it was perfect, if it was perfect, what would it be about? Not what would it be, but what would it be about? Because what would it be about is how you get to what would it be? And so you ask yourself that question and you ask yourself that question hundreds of times over and over and over again. You you go for walks and you think about it and you write down everything that comes up without questioning, without censoring. You know how much of a fan I am of not self-censoring, right? Huge fan. Don't self-censor. Write down whatever comes up for you when you ask yourself that question and then thank your unconscious mind. Create a good working relationship with that part of you that runs your life that is so valuable and important and powerful. Get that part of you on your side. Ask yourself this question over and over again and and the right answer will come up for you. And then one day you'll be sitting in the shower and it'll just pop into your head. You'll be like, oh, that's it. That's, that's it. That's the phrase. That's, that's perfect. It cannot be improved upon. It is perfect because it cannot be improved upon in, in the specific relationship that you have. Honor thy master. Be a joyful addition. Whatever you come up with. You might want to start with either of those things and then maybe explore that for a couple of weeks on a time-limited contract. So, those are your keystones. Now, your keystone is the core part. Now, the way that I like to think of this is an arch. So, uh, like a portal from one side of the archway to the other. And on the other side of the archway is everything you want. And that archway is supported by the keystone, that central stone in the top of the arch that balances the forces and allows it to exist. So the keystone is the most important part. But then the deal breakers are also super critical, right? So the deal breakers are anything that would happen that would cause the relationship to end or to be so unrecognizable that it would have to end, that it wouldn't be the same relationship. Now, this is, again, really interesting because there's lots of rules that people have, but a lot of those rules are preferences. And once you boil it down to 
once you reduce it down to, to use the, the cooking terminology, once you reduce it down to what really matters, the things that cause the relationship to end are the only things that really matter, right? The, the activities or actions, behaviors or expressions that can cause the relationship to be unsalvageable because everything else, everything that doesn't kill you by definition is something you can recover from, right? Everything that doesn't end the relationship is something that you can compromise on, you can come to understand. It might be difficult, there might be adjustments, but the relationship will continue in its currently recognizable form and it won't end. The worst thing that someone can ever do in a relationship, well, not the worst thing, but you get where I'm going with this, is stop. Just out of the blue, for no reason at all, just stop. It's one of the worst things someone in a relationship can do because once they've blocked you or you've blocked them, there's no chance of the relationship being healed. And that can be really damaging to people, especially submissives, especially dominance especially dominance because they will try to fix it. They will feel like it's their responsibility to fix the relationship. And then the more they try to do that, oftentimes, the more it, it damages them. So anything that by definition doesn't cause the relationship to end is something that you can recover from, something that the relationship can recover from. So with that in mind, you structure your deal breakers so that they cover everything that would cause the relationship to actually end. So let me give you an example so that you can have a framework. Here is the entirety of my current contract. I will pick a keystone phrase depending on the nature of the relationship with that person. Sometimes it's more about fun. Sometimes it's more about exploration. Sometimes it's more about stability, safety having a place that they can always go or that I can always go, whatever that is. And oftentimes, unless the relationship is a little more formal, I won't tell people this. I will just sort of come up with this idea. And when I interact with that person, I will always try and embody that, uh, what Jack Donovan would call that, that far north star, that idea of you can't reach it, it's out of reach, but you can keep walking in that direction and it will always guide the way. And this will be more relevant when I talk about another concept I'm coming up with uh, called K+, which is just, oh, fucking magical shit, man. Seriously, fucking brilliant. I'm not gonna lie, I'm really proud of this one. So deal breakers. Everything that would cause the relationship to end or to change in form so dramatically that it can't be recovered. Now, my current contract from my memory is this. You must never lie to me about anything. There are times when you can't talk about things because of company or you're not capable of talking about things or you can't articulate it or you just don't know consciously yet. But in those situations, I want you to say things like, I don't know, or I can't talk about that right now, or I'm not comfortable talking about that with you right now, but here is when I will be something along those lines. But I don't ever want someone to lie to me, which, which is tough, I'll be honest. Like, that is a big ask for people, which is why I always give them the out to take the pressure off of like just being able to say, I can't talk about that right now. Because sometimes things are really hard to talk about. Sometimes they are. 
Sometimes topics can get really emotional, but we don't solve problems by running away from them. We solve problems by confronting them as a team, right? And moving through them. So total honesty about everything. I will never lie to someone that I care about. I will occasionally not tell them things, like if I'm sad or I'm having a bad day, I don't always share that information with someone, but I never lie if I'm asked directly about something. And if I am asked directly about something that I don't want to talk about, I'll say, I can't tell you that, or I, you know, I can't tell you that because, I can't tell you that because I made a promise to someone else that I would keep that secret for them. You'll have to ask them directly, yourself. Or I can't tell you that because of some other reason that makes perfect sense. But it's never just, I can't tell you that or a lie. Because then if, if someone finds out that you've lied to them like that, and I mean, I'm not perfect. I've lied to people in the past, like everyone does. But I try very, very hard now to be as honest as I can be. And because I expect that from other people, it's only, I suppose, fair to demand that of myself as a standard. So total honesty, no self-censorship. Now, what this looks like in practice is lots of conversations around what you like, what you don't like, being direct and practicing hearing things without taking them personally. Like there are fantasies and, and interests that I have that are really passionate to me, that are really meaningful to me. And I've been in great relationships with beautiful, short, extremely Italian women and they have been very compatible with me sexually, but they're just not into one or two of the things that I'm into. And it took a long time to separate that from a rejection because it's not, it's not a rejection of me. It's more just them saying, I'm not into that. I'm willing to give it a shot with you, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same powerful allure for me as it does for you. And that's okay, you know? No one is going to ever be perfectly compatible with someone because then they would be the same person, right? And it's impossible to expect every single person to be able to fulfill every one of your wants. It's pretty reasonable to be able to find someone to fulfill most of your needs, you know, because people have a lot less needs than they think they do. And they have a lot more wants that shift and change over time. I'm just thinking about a conversation I had with a poly girl the other day. And I keep thinking to myself, well, you know, one of the things that poly people need to realize is that they say not everyone can meet everyone else's needs, but a lot of them don't have the experiential understanding of what that really involves. And sometimes it's better to have a relationship with someone where they do meet all of your needs, but they don't meet all of your wants. And that's okay too. So no self-censorship, total honesty, first thing. Now, the second thing is no hard drug usage. So by hard, and this is one, whenever I have this conversation with a woman, they're like, what do you mean by hard? I'm like, you know what I mean by hard. Don't try to fucking snip around the edges, bitch. But for those of you that need a precise definition, what I mean by hard is ecstasy is okay. Marijuana or THC is okay. LSD and magic mushrooms are okay. Cocaine is not, heroin is not, methamphetamines are not, dexamphetamines are not. You know, the hard stuff. And I have to clarify this because a lot of people listen to my podcast in places like Amsterdam or Holland or uh, 
where you have like really liberal drug laws and it's like well yeah i do draw this distinction between fun drugs and like harder drugs so i will never compromise on this for anyone and i have ended relationships because i found out that they did something that's the whole point of a deal breaker is right i actually got part of the inspiration from this from caleb jones concept of the iron laws now what he talks about is in a relationship you should have only very very minimal rules he calls them rules but we're going to call them deal breakers today because those things will filter out no matter how many you have you should really only according to him ever have one to three right and his ones inspired a lot of mine you know no drug usage um no unprotected sex without telling me it's fine my partners can have unprotected sex with anyone they want it's just that if they don't tell me that they've had unprotected sex then it puts me at more risk and it makes me it makes it impossible for me to make certain decisions in an informed way so now my rules are very simple total honesty no hard drugs the third one i'm still kind of playing around with because but honestly i mean it's tough it is really tough I, I get it people are really depressed these days it's it's hard for some people to cope but i will from my personal experience and again of course you you make up your own contracts based on what you're willing to agree with but for me if someone is actively cutting themselves i will not be in a relationship with that person in any way and that one phrase captures the entire essence of how they should think feel act behave dress eat all of it all right be a joyful addition bring joy now obviously you have we have one keystone statement one you get one and it can change but it shouldn't change radically it's unique based on the nature of your relationship so here's how you find your keystone statement you ask yourself what is this relationship about and you ask yourself that question hundreds of times in every single context you can think of when you're out on the street when you're in the shower and you're in the bath when you're at home when you're walking when you're out with friends ask yourself that question over and over again think about it constantly ask yourself the question your answer will come up from inside of you and it will just pop what will happen is you'll get lots of ideas kind of like pulling on a thread as the jumper unravels and then you write all these things down and honor and respect the part of you by feeling deep gratitude the part of you that's given you these answers to this question and then it will give you better answers and then eventually it will give you the answer that defines the nature of that relationship that's how you find your keystone statement it should be short it should be sharp it is never longer than one sentence it is not complicated as you can as you can see it's three words sometimes less but be a joyful addition honor thy master whatever it is unique to that nature of that individual relationship and here is where i got to take a small tangent to talk about how it's very important not to put yourself in a fucking box and say well i'm a dominant i only do dominant things i'm like well i've got a podcast episode on coming up on that actually funny you mention it but you know i'm a submissive i only do submissive things i'm a kingster i only do don't put yourself in a box like that don't limit yourself the biggest one of the biggest mistakes i see people make and i i fell into that trap so learn from my experience learn from my mistakes so that you can avoid that suffering is thinking well i'm not a switch i'm not a submissive i must be a dominant turns out i'm much more than just a dominant you know 
And the more that you think about yourself, the more you'll realize how constraining those boxes are, which is why I've never picked a cool kink nickname. I've just, you know, used my first name because it is who I am. It is an identity thing for me. And it's not a, a coat that I put on and then I take off again. It's like I breathe, I am. That's right. So, keystone statement. Think about it over and over again. It's unique to the nature of your relationship. Now, your deal breakers are also very simple. These should be very few in number, right? These are the things that if they break it even one time, the relationship is over. One time. No exceptions for anyone. Because if there are exceptions for someone, then it's not a deal breaker, bro. Simple as that. Now, I got this concept from Caleb Jones. He has this concept when he was dating, when he's dating called the Iron Rules. And he has like two Iron Rules. And both of those are in my contract. Um, but don't put anything in there as a deal breaker that you can't hold yourself to 100% of the time, zero exceptions. If there are exceptions, like I promise not to lie to people unless it's really important to them, then it's not a deal breaker. Or I promise not to lie to them unless they're super hot. In which case, also not a deal breaker. You know, or I promise not to lie to them unless I'm really tired. Again, also not a deal breaker. Um, only put things in if they are actual deal breakers. My second deal breaker is personal to me, as all of yours should be. You can base yours off of mine, you can look through the DS contracts, but you should never have more than six. And ideally, the, the fewer the better. If something isn't going to cause you to end any relationship, no matter how long it's been going, then it's not a fucking deal breaker, right? To give you another great example, which kind of ties into this one, so I have a very hard policy on drugs. Now, I am totally 100% supportive of marijuana usage. I'm totally 100% supportive of ecstasy and THC and what I think of in, in my head as softer drugs. Right now, we can debate the morality of this shit later on. I don't give a fuck. But there's soft drugs and hard drugs. Hard drugs in my head are things like cocaine, heroin, meth. Right? If a woman that I'm dating, if, if I was married to someone and had three kids with them and we'd agree to this contract and she used meth even once, she would be out. No exceptions. And that's how I know it's a deal breaker for me. No exceptions. The third thing is they cannot have unprotected sex with someone else without letting me know before we have sex. So what this means in practice is if I'm dating someone and we're using condoms and she's on birth control and then she goes and has sex with someone else and doesn't make the guy use a condom, if she doesn't tell me about it before we have sex, as in if she exposes me to that kind of risk, and takes away my ability to make a decision based on, on good, solid, accurate information, then she's out, no matter who she is, right? Now, what that does is it, it shows a, a casual and a wanton disregard for my safety, which is just not a good idea, brah. It's not a good idea. You wouldn't do it to her, so don't let her do it to you. I mean, right? You're gonna go out and have unprotected sex with some random bitch and then come back to her and be like, oh no, honey, I definitely didn't do that. You can trust me, pinky promise. Like, you wouldn't do that, right? Don't let her do it. 
But again, your contract, your deal breakers. So those are the three rules. That's it. That's my contract. Honor thy master was my generic one. Um, or it could be, you know, be a joyful addition or, or something else that comes up as a unique part of that relationship. But those are the deal breakers. And that's DS Contracts 2.0. That's how you do it. Now, a lot of people will say, well, obviously you haven't covered things like how do they make their tea and, and that sort of thing. That's covered in the Book of Master. Policies and preferences are what I group those under. So they're not deal breakers because if you don't make someone's cup of tea properly, they aren't going to end the relationship, right? But say, for example, if someone stole 10 grand out of my bank account, right, that wouldn't cause me to end a relationship necessarily. It would depend on why they did it. Right? It would depend on how, how well they could justify those actions. If someone stole my car and crashed it, that necessarily wouldn't end the relationship if they were doing it for the right reasons. Right? But there is no, in my mind, there is no justification possible for being a drug addict. Or for me, dating a drug addict. Obviously, people can be addicted to drugs, and that's terrible, and we should try to help those people in the best possible way whenever we can. Right? if you're a trained professional. But I will not date anyone who is a cocaine addict or a heroin addict or a methamphetamine addict. Now that's a personal thing. You, you're more than welcome to do that if you want to. But think about the long-term consequences of that. Understand that behind my deal breakers there's very good reasons, right? Mostly with the drugs, it's that I've seen people I love very much get hurt by other people who have done drugs. And I'm like, you know what? Fucking smoke as many blunts as you want. I don't give a shit. Take as many edibles as you care. I don't care. I literally don't give a fuck, right? Take ecstasy. Don't care, you know? Take LSD. Don't give a shit. But if you're a heroin addict, you're out. No exceptions, ever. I will help you to find the treatment and the, and the support and the help that you need. I will recommend you to an excellent hypnotherapist who can support you through that process but I will never have a meaningful emotional or sexual relationship with someone if I know they're a drug addict, a hard drug addict, all right? Now, let me talk about a bit of the things that I thought should be deal breakers for me, but actually aren't, right? So one of the things I was going to put in was self-harm. I have, I'm a bit embarrassed to say it, but a long history of trying to help people who are self-harming. And I realized that if someone is self-harming, then there are certain circumstances under which I would be okay with them being in a relationship with me. So it's not a deal breaker, right? Now, obviously that's a personal decision and it would depend on the severity of that. And it would still be something that I would be very, very hesitant to do, but I can't think of a situation in which it would be an absolute 100%, never any of the time, no exceptions, you know? I mean, I've dated girls in the past that have self-harmed before our relationship and after our relationship, but have never done it during. And I was very happy in those relationships, you know? And if they'd started doing it to themselves, I would have helped them to get help. I would not have taken on the burden of saving them or trying to solve their life problems. I would have, but I, ne I would not necessarily have ended the relationship, which is why I can't put that down as a deal breaker. For me, anyway. Uh, Theft, again, if someone's got the right reasons, that might not necessarily be enough to justify the relationship ending, right? 
It's like if someone steals your phone and then sells it on eBay and then uses the money to buy you a better phone. I mean, it's a very far-fetched circumstances, set of circumstances there, but you can see where I'm going with that, right? There are certain things that are justifiable if you know the context and then you can make an informed decision. However, there are certain things in my mind that are never justifiable. And one of those for me is continuing to sleep with someone who has had sex, unprotected sex with someone and then lied to me about it or not told me before I've put myself at risk, right? So there are no exceptions to those things. And that's why I know they're my deal breakers. Now, back to policies and preferences. Now, what I like to do with this is I like to write these things down and then never punish someone if they don't do them, right? Because punishment makes everything so complicated and serious. And the issue with punishment is something that L.T. Morrison, who is a god amongst masters and an, an actual genius in how he handles this, because I've, I've read hundreds of books on kink and DS relationships, no joke. And his section in his second book of the Devil in the Details trilogy on punishment is the clearest, most functional example of punishment actually done correctly and in a healthy way that I have ever seen. And it is, in fact, the only thing that comes even close to being healthy, which in, in, that, in that sense it is, if you're in that kind of relationship. The way that he does it is, is, very, the way that he does it is very thorough and, in my opinion, healthy. However, it's also quite involving. But it's remarkable in that no other kink author has ever even come close to it. And the reason for that is that real punishment occurs whether or not the submissive slash slave, I use the terms interchangeably, thinks they deserve it, right? And this is where you figure out whether you have got a submissive or a slave. A submissive will not allow you to go through with the punishment if they don't think they deserve it. You have to convince them that they deserve it. You have to rules lawyer them. You have to bash them over the head with the piece of paper they signed. A slave will somewhat grudgingly sometimes accept that they can be wrong even if they don't think they are wrong and they will accept their punishment for being so. That's the difference, functionally speaking, between a slave and a submissive. But I like to write down my preferences and I like to put them in an unordered list. Well, actually, what I do is I group them under subcategories because it's, it's easier for reference material, right? Um, so clothing, preferences. I have a very long list of dot points of things I like to see women wearing. Not conclusively, it includes short skirts, big boots, long hair, right? So I have sections and it's basically an extension of this four columns chart for my designing my ideal partner exercises, right? But I'm not gonna punish someone if they don't wear the right outfit. It's just a preference. I might not be as pleased or as aroused by it, but I don't punish them for that. In fact, I don't really punish in my relationships anymore at all. Um, and I'll tell you why. Mostly because I realized that the agreement that I have is based on willpower, willingness. It's consent, right? Which is one of the things that makes it so weak. But your authority and the basis of your authority is something I will talk about in a moment. But essentially, the basis of your authority in a DS relationship is your submissive's willingness to keep doing it. And honestly, if that's the basis of your authority, then you don't necessarily have a lot to base that authority on. A submissive can leave the relationship at any time for any reason, and there's nothing you can really do about that. A slave can leave the relationship, if you happen to live in a first world non-Islamic country, can basically leave the relationship at any time for any reason. So. 
the relationship relies on the mutual consent of both parties involved in order to continue. In that respect, I don't necessarily not advocate punishment. I think it's very appropriate and very useful. However, punishment serves a number of very valuable purposes. One of them is the catharsis of the release of that punishment. And if you aren't familiar with it and haven't read it yet, then I highly recommend that you pick up uh, volume two of L.T. Morrison's. It's L.T., literally the letter L, the letter T, M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N-S, Devil in the Details trilogy. It's not the series of erotic fiction by the same name. It is a separate book. There's uh, swords and daggers on the cover. Um, but he talks about punishment and that process for punishment. So I don't really punish anymore. Um, mostly, I just don't reward when someone doesn't do those things. For example, if I told someone to show up wearing a certain outfit and they didn't, then I wouldn't punish them. I would just go, oh, okay, no worries, and let it go. Because it's not that important. It doesn't matter. It is nice if they do those things that I ask them to do. It is pleasant and pleasing to me. But sometimes they're having a bad day. Sometimes they forgot about it. I've learned in, I've learned in my maturity, given the experiences of my youth, that a girl can put on a short pink tartan schoolgirl skirt and a tight white blouse, a snazzy jacket, thigh-high boots. She can do her hair the way that you like it to be done. She can get on the train, travel an hour to meet you. And I can ruin everything that comes after that by being a cunt about the fact that she didn't dress the way I told her to. So don't do that. Don't, don't ruin your own life by getting in your own way like I did. I have these things expressed as preferences because I like steak and I like, you know, chicken and I like beef and I like sausages and I like all these different kinds of things. You know, my preference might be for a good steak, but then my preferences can change over time. There's usually some variation in how I, you know, sometimes if you had steak every night for a week, you want something a bit different. Sometimes you haven't had steak for ages and that's what you want most, but you can settle for other things. So I don't really punish anymore. I just have preferences. Some of these come from the four columns chart where I was designing my ideal partner. You know, I have, I have very strong preferences for things like dark gray athletic wear, you know, based on past experiences with people. It's, it's amazing to me how single memories can be such powerful, powerful emotional anchors, even years later. You know, highly specific choices of clothing or hairstyle they're very pleasing to me, but I won't punish people for not doing them. Even if I've told them to do them. I just slide it, shrug my shoulders, and get the fuck over it because it's not that important. You know, there's a million different reasons and they should never feel, well, ideally they shouldn't feel like they have to hide things from you for fear of your disapproval. You want to accept them just as they are, and I realize this is difficult. You want to accept them just as they are, flawed and broken human beings, as we all are. But then see within them the capacity, the potential for something extraordinary. What I always say to people is there's only one goal in my training relationships. And it is for them to see themselves finally 
truly, beautifully, as I have always seen them. Because when I see people, I see them and I see everything they could be, given the right nourishment, the right nurturing, the right circumstances, the right therapy in some cases. Sometimes you have to rip out trauma by the roots and sometimes you have to, you know, regression to cause some past sexual abuse or emotional abuse or whatever it is. And that's not your job, brah. That's not your job. You go and tell her to talk to a therapist, tell her to talk to a professional. You support them as much as you can, but remember that your happiness is your responsibility and her happiness is her responsibility. And one of the most wise and intelligent women I have ever had the great good fortune of knowing and learning from taught me that. Preferences. There are things that I like. There are things that I don't like. There are ways that I like things done. But I'll also settle for them not done that way or not done at all because I can live without my cup of chai in the morning. And I can live without my cup of chai being two-thirds hot water, one-third milk. But... I can't live with someone that is going to be a heroin addict. If it's not worth ending the relationship over, fucking get over it, bro. You know? Unless she's acted with a deliberate malicious intention consistently, it's probably not that important. Now, if someone is deliberately trying to undermine you, well, that's something that you need to talk to them about. You need to bring that issue up. I suppose it's worth mentioning here how I do conflict resolution protocols as well. So. Again, all this protocol and contract stuff is very formal, but the reality of it is you're more likely to have informal conversations about these things. It's just a proper, not a proper, there's a more effective way of doing it, right? That's simple and not overcomplicated. You don't have to sit down and do some 25-step conflict resolution process that came out of a book. Here's how you fix it, right? You say, I need to talk about you, uh, talk about something very serious and important with you, right? Be really fucking direct. I need to talk about something serious and really important with you. It is about the topic, and then you put the topic in, and about how I feel about that. Okay. Can I make some time for us to sit down and have a proper one-on-one conversation about this? And they'll say yes or no. You might have to convince them of the importance of this because, well, some people think things are important. Some people think other things are important and some people don't think those same things are important. So you might have to be very direct. But I know a number of relationships, both of mine and others, that have ended because one partner didn't know how to ask that other person to just sit and listen to this thing that will ultimately destroy the relationship if it's not addressed, right? Then you set aside some time. Don't do it then. Set aside some time to have a proper conversation about it. Now, if there's a particular issue that you want to talk about and you want to give them time to think about it and, that, and you do. Basically, you do want to give them time to think about it. So say, this is what it would look like in practice. You go, Hi, Jessica. Uh, not her real name, by the way. Uh, I need to talk to you about how you have become a heroin addict. I feel, I feel that this is dangerous and it hurts someone that I care about, you. Can I set up a time to talk about this with you and express my feelings? And they go, yes, of course, Daniel, because you're super awesome and amazing at everything. Not everything, but you know what I mean. 
And then you like, okay, she's like, what specifically did you want to talk about? Well, I'm concerned about how often you're using heroin and I'm concerned about the fact that you're using dirty needles and that you're doing it while rolling around in the mud in front of a McDonald's because I just, I think hygiene's important, you know, whatever. And she goes, okay, well, let me think about that and let's set, aside, let's, let's set up a time now. So not now, but you set up a time, say a couple of days from now to give both of you time to think about everything, right? It's really hard for people if you have a big emotional issue and then you just kind of drop it on them out of nowhere and then say, hey, react to that in a calm and rational way. Because their first reaction will be, no, I will not react to that in a calm and rational way. They will likely get defensive. And you don't want to be around them when they're doing that. But you don't want to be wasting the time that you've set aside for that conversation with them getting defensive and then you having to wait two and a half hours for them to not be defensive anymore. So mention the things that are concerning you, right? Don't argue with them. Don't. Just fucking don't do it. Right? Say, let's talk about this more at the time and the place that we've set aside. Meet on neutral ground, not your house, not her house. The best place I've found to do it is in public, but at a distance from other people so you can still talk but also so that you feel safe, she feels safe, and it's neutral ground. You don't want to have this conversation in bed because it poisons the place that you are most intimate together, right? You don't want to have this conversation in your house because it's your castle, and you don't want to bring drama and shit into your castle. You don't want to have a conversation at her place because it's her center of power. So go somewhere else, out in public, in the sunshine and the bright, warm afternoon sun. Don't go to a coffee shop and talk about it because you're too close to other people. Be physically distant from other people and have a proper fucking conversation, right? Be as honest as you possibly can be. Let them be as honest as, they po as you possibly can allow them to be. Listen, express yourself. These are hard things. I, I, God, Christ only knows I know this, right? But that's the level that you must aspire to, is to be able to hear things and not take them personally even when they are incredibly personal, right? To listen and accept people just the way they are while also recognizing that you never want to see that person again. And that's a judgment that you're allowed to make or you can choose to act. But it's, it's about developing yourself to the point where you can separate action from reaction, right? You are not a victim. You are not a slave. Well, some of you listening to this might be slaves. You are not a slave to the automatic responses in your unconscious. You can choose. Not everything. You can't choose some things, but you can choose more things than you think you can. So you can choose not to get angry. You can choose not to hit your partner. You can choose not to ghost on a guy. You can choose to tell him the real reasons why you're insecure, not because of anything that he's done. You can choose. So make good choices, people. And that's roughly how I would handle a serious conversation. And I, I say this because it's important, but also because in the past I've not done it that way and I've suffered a lot for it. I've lost some absolutely, truly inspirational women from my life because I didn't know how to have serious conversations about my problems and my insecurities. I've also lost a couple of women because they didn't know how to have proper conversations about their insecurities. So try to, try to learn from that. Try to learn from my mistakes. Follow that simple process. But yes, women, just to clarify, 
if you say, hey, this really matters to me, kind of offhandedly in conversation, casually, one or two times, that doesn't count for shit, right? If you stamp your feet in public and make a big fuss about it, the normal human response is to treat you like a fucking child. The way that you get things done is by making it clear, saying, hey, we need to set aside some time to have a proper conversation about this. This is really important to me. And if it's not gonna end the relationship, fucking smile and get over it, you know? No one will ever be able to satisfy all of your needs or wants. Nothing will always be perfect, except sex while you're hypnotized, because that is perfect. Got a podcast episode coming up on that too. You know, how to make sex perfect for the person that you're doing it with and for you too. But it is a bit of a stretch. I get it. It's hard to accept people like that. But you've got to work towards that. You've got to aspire to that. That's not unconditional love and acceptance for all peoples of the earth. That's accepting the people that you care about that are intimate and close to you. Now, here's another interesting thing. I was having a conversation with a great girl recently and she, like a lot of people, noticed that after a certain point in time, all the fun starts to bleed out of DS relationships. Partially it's these massive constricting contracts that fucking suck. I'll talk about it at the end because those at the end because they're the least important part of today. But it's to do with the fact that the, the variety and the volatility and the spontaneity of the relationship bleeds out over time. Because the goal as a, as a dominant is to have a good relationship with them, to have fun, to connect, to be intimate, to build something together. The goal is not to be a good DS couple and look good on the cover of some fucking magazine. The goal is not to go to kink clubs and show off. The goal is to connect with the person, to build something that matters to you. Everything else is a fucking wank, right? It's that same concept that David Shade talked about years ago, is if you're not having sex with the person in front of you, then you're masturbating with their body, right? What are you building? What's meaningful about this? How can you make it more meaningful for both of you or just for you? Either is fine. But one of the problems that comes up in a DS relationship is that over time, submissives don't like to break the rules. Now, one of the big problems in these big, long contracts is there's so many rules and they always feel like they've broken something. A lot of submissives are quite confrontational in that they need that electricity of aggression and reconquering. They need that reassertion of authority in order to feel safe in a relationship, right? They need you to periodically walk the boundaries with them, show them where the edges are and let them feel that. A lot of bratty submissives feel this way and that's perfectly healthy. The problem is you as a dominant are making these rules, agreeing these rules, designing everything with them, in conjunction with them, in partnership with them for a damn good reason. There is a damn good reason behind every one of those deal breakers. And if there isn't, then it shouldn't be a fucking deal breaker, right? So what happens when a submissive casually does cocaine to try to get that kind of spark, that electricity, that feeling of being owned and reconquered? Then you have a fucking problem because you have to put your money where the mouth is and say, well, now all of a sudden I don't want to be in a relationship with you because you broke this rule that was really important to me. So you end up with people coming up with lists and lists and lists and lists and lists of rules 
and they don't understand the psychology of a submissive to the point where a, a submissive will, will occasionally openly challenge those rules and break them just to see what will happen. If they can break the rules and nothing bad happens to them, if there are no consequences for that, then why even bother having those rules? And Caleb Jones's argument is basically that. If you're not going to punish them or end the relationship with them, like realistically, it's very difficult to punish someone in modern life because if you're violent towards them, they just call the police. And if you say something mean, they just call all their friends. And you know, there's very minimal accountability in relationships these days. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. And I'll probably do a podcast episode on that later on too. But, um, you know, we have to work within the reality that we have. And the reality that we have is that some submissives are going to want to break rules just so they can break rules, right? So what you actually come up with is this concept that I stole from a water heater that I was working on once with my dad, right? And in water heaters, they have this sacrificial cathode or anode. It's a thing that is designed to be replaced every 10 years or so because it's there so that it rusts or corrodes rather than the actual water heater does, right? And a big problem is when people don't replace their sacrificial anode or cathode or whatever the fuck it's called. And uh, I was like 10 years old when we were doing this. And, and the, the rust and the corrosion gets into the water heater, right? So what you do is you actually make rules. Here's the genius of it, right? Prepare yourselves. That are designed to be broken. You make up a handful of, of extra rules that you don't really give a shit about, that they're, they're there to be broken, right? And what they do is they give the submissive an outlet. Whenever they want to poke the bear, right? Whenever they want to feel your fucking hand on their throat again, whenever they want to just have you slam them down onto the bed and fucking destroy that pussy, they break a rule. You're giving your beloved, cherished partner an opportunity to initiate some sort of meaningful action. And it's not as though you need them to carry it all the way through to the end. It's not as though you need them to do everything in this situation. Although obviously most benefits, most relationships would benefit from the occasional flipping of sexual aggressive versus the person that's being pursued. But the submissive breaking that rule is a signal. It's a signal to you. It is, I need to put the hand to the ass. Okay? It is, I need to make sure that she feels it. I need to punish her. Right? Now, whether that punishment is fun or whether the punishment is real is not super relevant. What is important in this case is that the submissive wants to feel something. So... What you're doing here is you're giving an animal a, a mechanism by which it can communicate with you, right? To ask for what it needs in a way that doesn't violate the idea of the act being part validation as well as part act, right? So the issue here is oftentimes submissives want not necessarily a thing to happen. They want you to do it. They don't give a shit what happens. Well, obviously there's, there's narrow, there are ranges of acceptable behaviors they would consider acceptable. But what they care about is that you're the one doing it. They want the validation of being attractive. David Shade talks about this in one of his books where he's quoting someone else. He's quoting a book called Dangerous Men, Adventurous Women, which is a series of essays by romance novel authors on the psychological appeal of the female romance novel, right? 
And he's talking about how this quote that just stuck in my head is the desire of the man is for the possession of the woman. He wants to own her basically, right? And the desire of the woman is for the desire of the man. And if you really meditate on that, if you really think about it with your little brain, right? It goes around and around and it makes so much sense. Women want to be desired because women that have the desire of powerful, aggressive, sexually dominant men, they get to live. They get to be protected. They get to have children. They get to be provided for. They win at being a woman. So being desirable to those men is so life-affirming to a submissive woman, to a mentally healthy woman in general. Being desired by people that you desire to as a woman is so critical. As a man, it's probably even more critical because of how rare it is. But it's not so much the act that they care about, it's the fact that you give enough of a shit to desire to do it to them. I'm thinking of a particularly dysfunctional relationship that I used to observe, <laughs> observe all the time. And this young couple, the woman was very attractive, spoiled. I don't want to say privileged because the word usage has been distorted by modern social justice warriors, but she wanted for nothing, right? She had a Rolodex of guys that would walk over the warm corpses of her current boyfriend and all their other competitors just to fuck her. And she knew it, right? And a woman like that needs one thing in a relationship to be happy. She needs to know that she's not the center of the universe. And so every so often she would act out and he would get frustrated at her because she was perfectly fine 99% of the time. And every so often she would just be a massive cunt for no appreciable reason. And I said to him, dude, what's happening here? Do you want me to explain this to you so that you're not so frustrated? Because I just watched them have another knockdown, drag it out fight in public. And he's like, I don't understand what's going on. She's like, she needs to feel certain things. And, and it's just not happening because you're too good of a person, right? Anyway, the long story short version was she was breaking these rules to get a response out of him. But the rules that, he, that she was breaking to him meant that she wasn't serious about the relationship, right? To him, to the dominant that's carefully planned this all out and is taking on the full burden and responsibility of all of this, it means that he wasn't loved. It meant that he wasn't safe to talk about his feelings because she could just stomp off at any point and, and hurt him in a dozen different ways. And it was heartbreaking to watch this because her breaking the rules to her meant that she got attention. To him, breaking the rules meant that he was a failure as a dominant. And that was something that he took very seriously. And as a man in general, because he really liked this girl. They were sort of engaged. They'd met each other's parents. They'd both approved of the marriage. You know, and it was like, why does she keep hurting him like this? Well, there's your answer. She wanted to feel something. Women are all about them feelings, brah. So, I wish I could say to him then what I know now, which is that you make up a bunch of bullshit rules that you don't really give a shit about, but they're like canaries in the coal mine, right? They're there as warning signs. So if she wants to pick a rule to break, you know, have her spill a cup of coffee on the floor, in the, in the kitchen, on the tiles. And that is the signal that she's in need of something, punishment, correction. So what I would do is I would have my keystone statement then I would have my deal breakers, and then I would have my quote unquote rules. But the rules here are only meant to be broken. 
they only exist to be broken. There's a handful of them. Now, the criteria for coming up with these is really simple. They can't be anything that causes lasting damage to the relationship, right? Like if one of the rules is you will not talk about personal matters in public to other people, you can't have her need to stand up in front of a kink crowd and tell everyone that you're down to your last 100 bucks or something. I, I don't know. You know, there has to be no real world consequences for breaking the rule besides the punishment that you invoke on her. Um, they have to be mutually agreed upon. They can't be contradictory. But this is more of a coping mechanism for those more bratty submissives that, that need a little bit more, you know, a little bit more fist in the cunt than some girls do. Honestly, I don't have any of these in my relationship. I am thinking about entering into a relationship with someone that has expressed that it would be good for her to have rules like that. And I'm like, well, that's why I'm thinking about it, you know? But I'll come up with three or four things that she can do just to provoke me, right? And in, in a way, what this is, is like codified brattiness, right? It's like, if you want me to spank you or throat fuck you or just rip you apart with my bare hands, then do one of these four things a couple of times and I'll get the message. The worst thing about it is because of the nature of it, right? It's paradoxical. It's not about the actual act. It's about the validation that the act brings them, which means they're absolutely trapped because they can't ask for it. As soon as they ask for it, it destroys the validation, right? It's why guys can't ask for their girlfriend to ravish them one day because it's not about them having brutal animalistic sex as the receiving partner. It's not about their partner being so consumed. It is about their partner being so consumed with desire that they don't ask their boyfriend's consent to fuck him because the validation is what matters. He wants to know, he needs to know, needs to know that he's attractive to you. The same way that a woman dies a little bit inside every time that she realizes she's not attractive to the man that she loves. It is just as painful, if not more so, especially considering the societal conditioning in Western cultures around how you're not a real man until you can please a woman or you're only a real man when you're making a woman happy or blah, 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 which just is totally one-sided and completely fucked up, right? I don't think I've heard anyone, even the most rabidly sexist people I know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, you're not a real woman until you're banging a dude. And yet in, that, in our society particularly, it seems to be quite common to just shit all over men for not being able to take care of a fickle, arbitrary, capricious other person who, over whom they have very limited control or influence. It's, it's a ridiculous double standard and I, I, I denounce it fully and completely. You are responsible for your own happiness and she is responsible for making herself happy. Fair's fair, folks. So... Rules specifically designed to be broken. Now, you can come up with a couple of these. Always talk about what they are with your partner, obviously, but they're not really rules, right? They're essentially triggers. Triggers in the sense that they're like pulling the trigger on a gun. You know, you do this a couple of times, things are gonna happen, right? It gives them a way for them to signal. I actually got most of this idea from dog training videos, right? There's these videos out now where people are teaching dogs how to speak using like, 
um, like speak and spell buttons. You know, like you, the, the dog will push the button and it will say something and it allows the dog to have an ability to communicate verbally or, or to, just an ability to communicate with its owner, right? It's not a one directional transfer of information. The way that operant conditioning is not about a one directional transfer of information. You're training the dog and the dog is training you. So it gives your submissive, maybe for the first time in their whole goddamn life, the ability to communicate with you in a way that doesn't violate that necessity of plausible deniability that's necessary for the validation component to still be valid, right? They can't say, hey, you're so nice to me. You're so amazing. You're such a great guy. I need you to just hurt me for no reason. They can't say that, right? Because it would destroy the validation that comes from that. Then they know that the guy is only doing it because they asked him to, right? No validation. They might get the act, but it's the validation that they want. So it's the validation that's important there. The other thing you can do is you can set up kind of general things that operate for a particular length of time. So what I've seen is people agree on, say, five or six behaviors to a certain degree of intensity, and then they give the dominant permission to do any of those things at any point within the next two weeks or a particular time period. Three weeks or less is usually good, right? It keeps things nice and fresh, short term, good, focused. And so at any time, the dominant can, you know, slap them across the face so long as the two of them are alone together and there's not a, it's at the right time for it, right? Like, or, or maybe at any time the dominant can ask them in public to take off their panties, right? Whatever it is that is transgressive, rule pushing, right? And she can have the satisfaction of knowing that that comes from a place of genuine desire for him because she hasn't specifically asked for it just then. It's what destroys that ability for an act to be validating is the requesting of it. And then the immediate like, oh, of course, I've always wanted to do this as your dominant, but now I'm only going to do it. The submissive will think that they're only doing it because they asked for it. And whether that's true or not, the fact that they're thinking about it kind of makes it true in that way. It makes it very difficult for you as a dominant to, to validate the sexual and emotional identity of your partner if they've already decided that whatever you're about to do will not validate them. So that's another option that you can use. You can create a list of things that you have blanket consent to do and then do them whenever you, the dominant, feels like it, not specifically at the request of the submissive, and then it will allow them to feel that validation. However, it's important to distinguish here as well, there are levels of validation that are unhealthy. Like if your partner is constantly requiring massive amounts of validation, and again, by massive, I mean it's all relative. You know, I've gone so far as to ask my partners to say nice things about me once or twice a week. And some people have found that to be onerous and too much and they've ended the relationship. It's like, mm, okay, but it's all relative, right? What I think is good is both of you in a relationship having a healthy sense of self-esteem. Now, there's always gonna be a small amount of validation that is very powerful and very particular and that can really only ever come from your intimate partner because they see a certain side of you that people that aren't your intimate partner don't see. So 
there are things they can say to you on topics that you can talk about really only with them that are going to be very meaningful for you. The trick is to keep that to a healthy level, to not require them to be constantly validating you, to be, as they would say in psychology, to be uh, to have an internal locus of self-esteem or an internal locus of control. An internal locus means that it's inside of you, is that you have the, the experiential understanding that you are responsible for making yourself happy. Now, what that means in practice is that if someone in your life isn't saying nice things about you and you need them to, you know, you go and find someone to say nice things about you. And it can be your boyfriend, it can be a friend, it can be your partner, it can be whoever is willing to do those things, but it doesn't always necessarily have to be the same person. And you don't have to go without those things. It's more that, uh, it's more the recognition of the fact that there are things that only someone that loves you, that cares about you, that's in a relationship with you, can really say and have a meaningful effect on you. Like if a stranger says you're beautiful, that's great. In fact, in that situation, it's probably more validating that a stranger says it than your partner. But if your partner says, I know you've been really struggling with your self-esteem lately, and I think that your singing voice is amazing. I think that you have within you the seeds of something truly magnificent. And I cannot wait to see you up on stage at Australian Idol, just blowing everyone away with what I've always known you were capable of. And I know that one day, I will see your name up there in lights. That's the kind of thing that someone that really knows you can say and have it really land. So yes. Now, another thing that's worth mentioning, which I think I mentioned earlier, is that you cannot punish someone for anything that is unconscious or outside of their control. It is unconscionable. It is, I don't want to say immoral, but it's just really fucking stupid. Um, you see dominants do this all the time. They punish people for things that that person cannot control. And it's a little bit like someone punishing a dog for breathing or punishing a dog for sleeping. It's like the dog can't control when it's tired. It can control where it sleeps. It can't control when it needs to poop. It can control where it poops. But you shouldn't punish the dog for pooping or by extension, you shouldn't give the dog any reason to suspect that you're punishing it for pooping, which is an action beyond its control. You need to make clear to the dog that it's not the thing that they did automatically. It's perhaps something consciously that they can control about it, right? It, you cannot. It is so incredibly destructive to punish your partner for something they cannot control. To use a recent example of misfortune from my own life, I used to punish someone for getting tired. Now, that was a mistake on my part, but it's a common mistake, so hence its use as an example, is they would work very long hours and they would come home and they would be very tired. And I would get angry at them because you know my job wasn't as physically exhausting as theirs was. And I wanted to talk to them. And I thought that them not talking to me was you know, a rejection or what it meant to me was that I wasn't loved or some other kind of emotionally damaging implication. What it meant to them was that they'd spent all day on the phone talking to people and they just didn't want to talk anymore because they wanted to rest their voice or they were tired. And so, you know, I was angry, disappointed, bitter, whatever. I wasn't punishing that person formally. I never took them over a chair and caned them because they were tired, but I was treating them badly because they weren't meeting one of my needs. And at that time, I 
still hadn't fully kind of I still I guess I still haven't but I still haven't fully I still hadn't fully internalized that idea that I was responsible for making myself happy and the solution to that was to just go and find other people to talk to and so I did that and that's what solved that problem but I realized later on that I was punishing that person for something they couldn't consciously control so punishment doesn't necessarily have to be um, formalized it can be and it's again obviously very difficult to do because if you actually care about something and you want it then of course you're going to be disappointed when you don't get it the distinction is you know are you going to deliberately act in a way to hurt that other person because they didn't do something that you wanted that's punishment I get a lot of this soft fluffy bullshit from submissives where they're like my dom's punishing me and I'm like what do you do nothing Wait, so you didn't do something you were supposed to do, and then his response was not to do anything to you about that at all. Yes, but he's punishing me. No, he's not. He's being an evolved human being and finding better ways of meeting his needs, right? And the way that he's doing that is by slowly replacing you in the relationship because you've proven to be completely unreliable. That sort of thing. You know, it's punishing someone is not like... There's a, a very dangerous trend in society to equate speech with violence. And unless that speech is actually a call to violence, it's not. So the analogy here is, unless he is actually punishing you by taking away something from you, or uh, in, in an unreasonable way, or, <clears throat> or he is adding in something painful to your life in an unreasonable way, then you're not actually being punished. So stop whinging. All right? The solution to this is to find someone else to meet that need. And if you're the kind of person where you can't stand to have anyone else in your partner's life meet any of their needs because you need to be the center of their entire universe, you need to look in the mirror and think about what you're going to do, girl, because that's one of the most harmful things you can do in a relationship is, is not meet your partner's genuine needs. You know, and, and, not, and again, for the monogamous people out there, much respect to you. Wanting to sleep with other people is not necessarily a need, you know. It is a desire, it is a want, and not wanting your partner to sleep with other people is reasonable. However, going out of your way to control every single interaction he has with every single woman ever is unreasonable. And it is unreasonable and cruel to intentionally damage your partner's ability to meet their own needs, which I've seen women do every fucking day of the week, as well as to impose restrictions on him that make it unreasonable or difficult for him to meet his actual genuine needs. Things like socialization. Things like you can't go out with your friends because, you know, I don't want you to as your girlfriend. You know, that's, that's cruel, man. That's fucked. I see that a lot. So yeah, if you can't control things consciously, you can't punish them for it. If, if they can't control things consciously, you can't punish them for it, all right? Uh, yeah. Now, the other thing that's useful about this as well is you can put these contracts in place. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that they're indefinite. However, a contract should be implemented in the, in the following way. Do it for one day, one full day. Do it on a weekend and just try it. And I hate when people say, oh, you know, just sign this 25-page contract and just try it. No, this works way better with a contract 2.0 because it's much shorter, right? Try it. For one day, honor thy master. For one day, don't do cocaine. 
Don't have unprotected sex with strangers before and then not tell me about it. You know, <laughs> one day follow the contract, then stop. Then don't do it again for another couple of days. Think about it, reflect on it. Share what you both found fun. Add things in. But again, the contract is not what you add things to, you know. Maybe deal breakers come up for you, right? Maybe, maybe jealousy is a problem. You know what? You're a normal human being. Jealousy is a bit of a problem for most people, for everybody, really. No one's immune to that. So you say, for example, if you go home with, if, if so, if you come to an event with me and you go home with someone else, that's something that I couldn't bear to deal with and I would have to end our relationship. Maybe that's a deal breaker that you find, okay? But when you're still feeling this stuff out, you don't get to, you don't get to end the relationship based on a deal breaker like that. Oh, you can, it's still your choice, I guess, but it's not necessarily the best way to do it because, and I don't wanna say this because I, I know a number of submissives that are just waiting for ways to rules lawyer the shit out of the, the contract. But the reason this works so well is that it's so short and it's so unambiguous. One of the reasons that longer contracts don't work is because submissives often try to find ways to wriggle out of it. They follow the letter of the law but not its intention. So, but the point of this is, you're gonna come across, you're gonna, you're gonna come across things that might be deal breakers for you. You know, I, I remember very early on when I took a girl to an event and she went home with someone else and it crushed me. You know, it just, I mean, I sat in the car for half an hour afterwards. I didn't cry, but I thought, God, what have I done wrong? What's, what's wrong with me, you know? And it was so painful that I thought, I don't wanna do this anymore. And I thought I should end the relationship because of how much pain I was in. And I didn't, I'm glad that I didn't. She didn't intend for it to hurt me like that. She thought it was okay, right? She, I didn't realize it was a deal breaker. She didn't either. So we talked about it and it never happened again. You know, you'll come across these things because the deal breakers are more significant, they're rarer you're likely to come across them a lot less often, which is why, again, small number of deal breakers, right? Everything else is a preference. Preferences are great. They can change hour by hour, day to day, you know? I didn't know that a preference existed within me for beautiful redheads in full body latex catsuits. And yet, a couple of days ago, I discovered that preference. Thanks to one charming young woman so now that's a preference of mine. Full body latex catsuit. I'm into that. Also, it feels really good, right? Like I've never actually touched anyone wearing latex before, but oh, it's just so, uh, it's strange. It's like touching snakeskin in the sense that there's something unnatural about it. But since I'm not scared of snakes, it doesn't bother me either with the latex. It was brilliant. Now, I'm not like a fetishist or anything. I'm not like the kind of person that can't get off unless there's latex somewhere involved. But, you know, that's a preference now. I didn't know about that. But it's not a deal breaker. So doing this for short periods of time is the smartest way to do it. I'm actually working on another podcast episode. I hate to keep mentioning stuff I'm still working on, but some of the research that goes into these things is eight, 10 months of practical experience, experimentation, you know, one of the things that's been holding me back a lot lately is I haven't had a lot of people to practice things in person with up until recently. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of just sat there for five months because I need more people to do it with in person. 
but uh, time limiting is very important. Don't sign a contract and then just make it indefinite. Do it for one day. In fact, if you want to, do it for three hours. I always advocate people do a contract for three hours first. Just try it. Do it for three hours and do it for one day. Then maybe do it for two days, but space it out. Do a week or so between where you're not in the contract. You're just interacting as normal people. Right? And then limit those contracts. And I think the longest term a contract should be is three months. I would sign a DS relationship contract with someone, or I would verbally agree to a contract 2.0 with them, which I would memorize and they would memorize because of its brevity and how fucking awesome the concept is. But I would agree to one for three months and then I would stop and reorient, talk about it, and take at least two weeks off just to be normal people again. I genuinely think, and Henry David Thoreau backs me up on this, that the healthiest mode of living is not extremes of one or the other. It's not a 24-7 DS relationship, and it's not some lasses fair, casual, who gives a fuck, I'm building nothing, it can end at any time for any reason, shit show. It is movement, not necessarily in the moderate sense, not halfway between either of those things, it's, it's moving back and forth between those two extremes, that vacillation between those two extremes. So you can have the relationship that you want, and then not have the relationship that you want for a couple of weeks and just get to know that person again. Get to feel into that person again. Get to figure out how they've changed and how you've changed and just take a breath. Just like, fuck it, take a breath, you know? So in summary, you have a contract that is a radical revolutionary departure from the way that things have always been done. And this is because the way that things have always been done is totally shit. And it's just unthinkable to me to go back to the old way of doing things now that we have a much superior alternative. And I say this as someone that has spent the equivalent of over a decade of his life living in person with people under contract to him. At one point I was running a multi-slave girl household of three women plus another that didn't live with me. They were all under contracts of various shapes and various forms and I was exploring and figuring out this whole thing but there were so many drawbacks. So before I get stuck into the, the flaws and defects in the contracts 1.0, let's summarize contracts 2.0. They consist of a keystone statement, a simple phrase which encapsulates the irreducible nature of the relationship that is aspirational and that is simple and applicable to every situation. Honor thy master applies to everything. Wear the clothes that honor your master. Keep your hair in a way that honors your master. Serve in a way that honors your master. Or, as was suggested to me by a friend, be a joyful addition. Everything you do as a submissive or a slave or a partner should be a joyful addition to your other partner's life. Now, of course, the pitfall there is to always make sure that your mental health is a priority for you as a submissive and a dominant to also understand that you are responsible for making yourself happy, dominant or submissive, and to seek out help from people when you need it. On the matter of self-esteem, 
you'll find the content in, I think it's the second or third podcast in this series on uh, improving your submissive self-esteem or fixing a lower sense of deservedness, I think it's called. You'll find everything in there very useful and applicable, and I'll be coming up with new updated versions of those soon because they're so broadly applicable and because everyone needs to make their mental and emotional diet as much of a priority as their physical diet, the food that they eat. People eat amazing food, high quality, nutritious, and then they sit down and watch six hours of the news every night. And we've got to fix that, people. We've got to fix that. You deserve better. That's not some wishy-washy, flim-flammy bullshit. I think that's genuinely true for me. I believe that you deserve to have an amazing relationship. And I also know that with work, with effort, with time and guidance, that you are capable of it, of being a part of something like that, of contributing in a meaningful way to something larger than yourself. Then there are a very small number of deal breakers that would cause you to end the relationship. So these are things like drug usage or you know, unprotected sex with strangers, or if you're a monogamous person, perhaps having sex with anyone else physically might be on the list. But these are the situations, these are the circumstances or behaviors that if they occurred would cause you to end the relationship with no exceptions. And I talked about what makes a deal breaker a deal breaker and what makes a deal breaker not a deal breaker. If you can imagine Scarlett Johansson doing it and getting away with it in your relationship, then it's not a deal breaker. There have to be things that have no exceptions to them, things that are iron rules, unyielding. So don't have very many of them, because even one or two will filter out a huge number of people. Don't make the mistake of thinking that everything, every rule is as important as every other rule, which is where, um, I still haven't come up with a cool name for this yet, like fake rules, rules that are meant to specifically be broken as a way for your submissive partner to provoke you into the kind of response they need from you, they're useful. And it's also why preferences are useful. And I like the term preferences because it's soft. It is very soft. I like girls in short skirts, but I also like girls in dresses. I like certain colors on a woman more than I like other colors. Those are preferences, but I won't punish someone for wearing the wrong color or for wearing the wrong clothes or for having their hair in the quote unquote wrong way. And what I mean by not punishing them is I mean I won't attack them or do something to hurt them as a result of that. And I also won't take away from them anything uh, intentionally in a way that's designed to hurt them. So for example, I told a woman to wear a certain outfit to a date that we're going on, and she didn't wear that outfit. I wouldn't punish her, but she might not necessarily get to go on the date with me because the outfit I asked her to wear was a life preserver, and we're going swimming at the beach, or we're going on a boating trip, and we needed those outfits in order to make it all work. So in that situation, you might miss out on something, but it wouldn't be a punishment. It would be, well, now I've got to find a way to get around this. Now you're going to have to find a way that you can get around this, that you can meet the standards that I've set. I don't really punish, I just don't reward. And that's something that comes from years now of operant conditioning. Punishment, if it's done the wrong way, can destroy a relationship. I remember very early on in my life, I, I ruined an absolutely beautiful dynamic that I had with someone 
because I punished her for something that she wasn't consciously capable of controlling. I didn't realize that at the time. Well, I, I didn't realize that you weren't supposed to do that at the time. And that was, you know, 15 years ago now. So I've learned a lot since then, but I still regret it. But uh, she's fine. She was fine, you know, two weeks later. But I just try to learn from the mistakes that I've made, if you can. It'll save you having to make them yourself. And that's another point worth mentioning. It is really only possible to punish someone for a behavior they can consciously control. So don't punish people for things they can't consciously control. Also, when you're doing contracts, introduce them for short, very short periods of time for a while and explore what happens. Don't take it too seriously. Just do it for three hours, one afternoon when you're not you know, out at, in the public with an event. Just super gentle, right? Not super meaningless, but super gentle. Think of it like you're gently winding up to this rather than starting at 100 miles an hour, roaring down the freeway with the top down. You'll get there faster than you think, but it's about spacing the stuff out. Okay, so space it out. Do the contract for a couple of hours, one afternoon on a Saturday when you're both at home. See if there's any major problems. See how you both feel about that. Roll it back for a couple of days. Go back to normal, being normal people who have a normal relationship and then maybe do it for half a day. You know, start it at 12 o'clock lunchtime on a Saturday and go till midnight or go till when you both fall asleep, right? See how that goes and then maybe take it out out of doors, outside the house, in public. See how that goes. And then spaced repetition, essentially, is what you're doing here. You're, uh, well, it's not exactly what you're doing here, but that's the concept that inspired the timing of this. You don't want to do all this once and then just write it and then have it apply indefinitely and change it on the fly. My dad taught me this when you're building a house. You never want to live in the house that you're building. Right? There's mess everywhere. It will never feel settled. So what he used to do was he used to live in a little caravan next to the house he was building. And that way he could have a place that wasn't filled with tools and wasn't filled with crap and wasn't filled with building material. Never build the house and live in it at the same time. So that's why you take time. You stop. You talk about it some more. You figure it out. And then you write this little one, less, less than one paragraph contract. And then you work on that to the point where you both agree on it and you implement it for a couple of days and see how it goes. Just road test this stuff. There's no rush, you know? And this is another big thing is don't judge yourself based on other people's standards of you. This is huge in kink, particularly depending on where you are in the world. I, uh, I found it was a huge problem in Melbourne. Just everyone was so judgmental of everyone else's relationship based on entirely arbitrary third-party standards. It's like, don't, that doesn't matter. What they're thinking doesn't matter. Do what is fun for you and your partner. Do it in a way that is fun for you and your partner. Do it in a way that is meaningful for you and your partner. Because ultimately that's what this is about. You're about building something that matters. Building something meaningful, a connection, a relationship, a set of experiences that will stay with you forever and stay with them for even longer. Do it because it means something to you and do it as though it means something to you live 
but don't judge yourself for what you think, for the things you can't control that you want. When I was growing up, I thought I was a very bad person because I liked to hurt people. I never did it without anyone's consent, but I still felt bad about enjoying it. It took me a long time because I didn't have anyone to talk to about that to come to terms with it. And I don't want you to feel alone. I want you to understand that it's okay to think and want these things. It might not always be the best thing to act on them, but it's not a bad thing to feel them, to enjoy feeling them. If you ever need to talk, just send me an email. The address is on the website and the contact page. I'm, I'm very approachable. I'm very easy to find. So that's Contracts 2.0 in summary. Now, what I want you to do is actually use this. Now, what I do when I use this is I do it really informally. So I will run someone through these rules just casually in a conversation. In fact, I did it a couple of days ago with a girl that I just met. We were talking about this and she was saying that she wanted to see me again. And I really like this girl. I actually want this to work. And so I said to her, look, I've been thinking about maybe entering into a relationship with you. I don't know yet. Well, I didn't say that, but I said words to that effect. And I said, I only have a couple of things that would really bother me. There's only a couple of things that would really bother me. But I also said to her that these things don't apply to you because we're not in a relationship. You haven't agreed to anything. I'm not going to hold you to my standards because you haven't agreed to be held to them. But I said, it would really bother me if you had unprotected sex with someone. And then if we had sex and you didn't tell me. And she's like, what does that mean? So I explained that in detail. It means that if we were in a relationship, if we were having sex together and you went out and had unprotected sex with someone, didn't use a condom, and then you had sex with me without letting me know that you'd done that, that would be really mean and I would be hurt by that. Right? Now, I wouldn't break up with her because we're not in a relationship, but you know, I probably wouldn't stop. I would probably stop seeing her because it's a huge breach of trust. But again, you've got to make people aware of these things. You can't... One of the most dangerous things you can do as a nice guy and if you are a white male dominant hypnotist, you are in the highest risk category that exists for being a nice guy. So listen closely to this part. Then you have to make it very clear what they're actually agreeing to. So this will be part of the episode that I'm doing at the moment on erotic behavioral design. Though I'll go into more detail there. Uh, it's an entirely new process that I've come up with for training submissives and slave girls. But one of the things I talk about is definitions and meanings. So, you know, what do they, what, when I say no hard drugs, what does that actually, what is the definition of that? You know, I had someone ask me recently, is, is um, magic mushrooms on that list? And I'm like, no, it's magic mushrooms are magic mushrooms. You know, like, pff, I don't give a shit. But that's the definition. What is a hard drug? What is a soft drug? And then what does that actually mean? What it means is what I say. And then you give them the actual meaning. What it means is if I find out that you have done heroin while we are in a relationship and you have agreed to this relationship contract, then I will end the relationship. Everything else is fine. That, that kind of thing, you know? And again, it's, I'm a little bit out of practice with this because I haven't been in a long-term relationship for a while now, but you don't have to make this stuff super formal. You can just kind of say, well, it, it would really hurt my feelings. Right? It would make me question. But you're not trying to control them with this because and one of the great secrets of contracts and one of the things I'll talk about shortly as to why they don't actually work, especially in kink. Well, 
well, they, they work in real world, they just don't work in kink, is that you have as much power as they think you have, right? So if they think that you have no power, then you have no power. And you've been building your whole relationship on sand, as the biblical saying would go. So, it's important not to put too many constraints on your partner. I see this a lot with both men and women, where a woman will come into a new arrangement with a guy and she'll say, oh, by the way, now that you're in a relationship with me, here's the rules. And all the rules are super important. None of them can be broken. And if there is, there's so much drama. And the reality of it is that only two or three of those things really matter. Or maybe if they've, one of those rare situations where they all actually matter, then that person isn't quite compatible with you because there's so many things that you can't help. It's a bit like, that American concept where they've arranged their legal system so that everyone breaks like two laws every single day. You know, a lot of people that are insecure deal with that in a relationship by trying to control the other person excessively. And one of the ways they do that is by having so many rules that you can't help but violate them, right? So that's when it's important to talk to people about what really matters. Those are your deal breakers. If you can agree on deal breakers, everything else is fine because everything else can be forgiven. It might take you a while. You might have to do things to compensate for it. You know, if someone steals your stuff, maybe put a lock on your door and, and keep an eye on them more closely. But if you can if you can get past that, if you can, if that isn't going to cause a relationship to end, then you can survive that. The relationship can survive that. So I also talked about putting a time limitation on contracts. I don't believe any contract should be longer than three months. People's life circumstances change. Obviously, if you're in a DS relationship and you've already been in the same relationship with the same contract for 20 years and you want to just keep going, that's fine. But I think three months of intensity like that is a good practical limit. Uh, I myself have made the mistake several times of basically just writing a contract that takes effect until all of a sudden one day you wake up and it doesn't. So periodical review and especially time for both of you out of the relationship structure like that and just being normal people is really healthy and arcane talks about this in his book uh, which is excellent by the way and if you haven't got a copy of it think about picking up the kindle version I, i'm not too sold on the whole physical hard copy thing for it but definitely get the kindle although if you like coffee table books and you're the kind of person that likes to leave things lying around for women that come around to your house to find it's very beautiful, I will say. You know, the, the, the fake leather on the front and uh, yeah. Get it signed as well if you can. It's always a nice personal touch. But he talks about that as a, you know, and I'm getting a bit off topic here, but it's a bit more related to the episode on sort of long-term relationship dynamics that I haven't published yet. But basically, even the most intense people aren't intense all of the time. Right? You go to the gym and you work out really hard, then you go home and you eat and you sleep and you rest and you sunbathe and you get the right vitamins, the right nutrients, the right minerals, the right times and the right ways, and you rest. DS relationships are like that, especially MS ones when you're living together and there's this constant drain on your energy and attention. It's what makes it so difficult to maintain these things long term is that it is exhausting. It is constantly exhausting. You learn to deal with it, you learn to cope with it. You, you develop those muscles until the point where it's not as exhausting anymore. But anyone that's ever done that for a long period of time knows that you gotta keep thinking up more and more different ways of this and that. And it's just, it's fun and engaging and passionate, but it's 
not sustainable long-term at that intensity. Everyone needs a rest to recover. Henry David Thoreau talks about this in his book, Walden. You know, he lives in the city, the city exhausts him. He moves to the country, the country relaxes him. But over time, he begins to miss the city. So he moves back to the city and then the city relaxes him. He finds the social stimulation comforting. And then over time, he begins to miss the woods and the quiet and the comfort. You, you vacillate between those two states of intensity and relaxation. That's healthy, it's good to take a break. <laughs> There's a woman I used to know, and she would say the word good in such a specific way, and every time I accidentally say it the same way, I can't help but think of her. It's interesting, the things that come up. So that's the summary of this episode. Think about redoing the contracts in your life in this way. I guarantee you it is vastly superior. The other thing that's important to mention is that a DS contract has no legal basis, right? It's not enforceable, which means it's worthless. What you're looking for is a set of rules that allow the relationship to continue if you follow them and if she follows them, right? And you're also looking for that keystone statement that guides both of you towards the thing that the relationship is designed to mutually accomplish. Now, I think honor thy master is a very good one because it also applies to the man, you know, honor thy master is going to the gym, honoring you. Yes. Is being a fat piece of shit, not honoring you. No, it's not. You know, is her going to the gym, honoring her master? Yes. Is her um, not pursuing her passions and talents? Is that honoring her master? No, it's not. You know, someone that loves you will want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. <laughs> even if when that happens, you outgrow them. I've had that happen. You meet someone, they're amazing. You help them become even more amazing and they outgrow you. And that doesn't really matter in the long-term view of things. They were always going to do that. And it's satisfying to see them fly from a distance. But and that's neither here nor there, really. You're not obligated to improve the lives of everyone you spend time with. <laughs> and I'd do a lot of things differently if I could go back, but mostly it's make the, your needs in the relationship a priority. Not the priority, but a priority. And I say this because no one else is saying it, right? No one else is saying to dominance, your needs also matter. Or they are in this kind of fallacious, half-assed way, and then it's you know immediately followed by a list of things they should be doing to make their submissive more important. That makes their submissive matter more. It's like no, no, your needs as a dominant, as a male, matter just as much. Not necessarily more, depending on the nature of your relationship, they may actually matter more. But honor thy master is brilliant because it says to you. I am a man, I am capable of so much. I contain within myself the seeds of greatness and I wish to hold myself to a standard where I am accomplishing those things, where I am honoring my potential. That is a good thing. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you've enjoyed a greater than usual number of me drifting back through memory lane and trying to teach from my own pain. It's not necessary that you suffer in this way. 
And a big part of why I do this is so that you don't have to. You don't have to make the same mistakes that I've made. You can learn from my experiences. One of the problems I was having this conversation with recently with a good friend of mine, one of the problems with educators in this area is there's so much reputation around being perfect. And I feel that puts a lot of pressure on educators to cover up the mistakes they do make or did make. Uh, there's so many consequences for even admitting that you've made a mistake in the past, up to and including total deplatforming, people being uninvited from events, and social censure. And I'm not afraid of that shit, because I just don't fucking care. So, I hope to lead and inspire through my example. It's okay to make mistakes. If you have a mistake and you want some advice on it, send me an email, right? Or you can get in touch on Threema, which is a an anonymous encrypted messaging app. It's kind of like Signal, but with the addition of an anonymity. I think my uh, my Threema ID is on the contact page of the website. I know that it's in the signature section of my email address, but uh, yeah, check that. Contact me there if you like. Oftentimes it's easier to solve these things with a short audio message or a quick phone call. But you're not alone. You deserve to have a great relationship and you absolutely can. And Contracts 2.0 is just one of the tools that you can use to build something that matters with someone who matters to you and who you matter to as well. So I'm gonna talk in the next section about all the things that fucking suck about traditional contracts, but I'm gonna separate this out because this is the positive, useful part, and the other part is just a rant to convince people that just need a bit more convincing. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope that you get some value out of it. I don't really need to hope that though, because I know that you will. The right people will listen to this and make these changes if they want to. And if you're not one of those people, that's okay. I hope you've enjoyed it anyway. Like if you had a billion dollars and as many men or women as you wanted, what would your day look like? Where would you wake up? Who would you wake up next to? What house would you wake up in? What would the view out of your kitchen window be? Ask yourself those elicitative questions and think about meditate on the answers that come up from within you. It's a very similar process with this. You as a dominant will have things that are naturally important to you. So writing your own contract, basically what you would like in the contract. Um, this is, it can be frustrating. It is a truly rare thing to meet a submissive with any degree of self-awareness. Um, and that is something that I always work on first. Not, not to the point of it being nauseating or I'm lecturing to them about it. It's not like I'm trying to teach them how to do the textbook version of self-awareness, but it's more a general customized approach to improving their awareness of themselves and their ability to articulate their own thoughts and desires into a usable form. Um, what you'll see in practice is submissives being asked, what do you want? And they'll go, I don't know. And there's a number of factors at work here, one of which is that they do generally just want to do what the dominant wants them to do, um, up to a point and within a range of activities, submissives have that implicit desire to please, and I use the term submissive and slave here interchangeably, but they have that implicit desire to please that is often explicit once a little self-awareness has been added to the mix, just a pinch. So asking them what they want is often a terrible idea 
not because it's morally wrong, but because they often have no idea. And that not knowing can be very frustrating for them unless you then immediately apply a series of precisely targeted questions like the attributes method or, or the inversion technique or the ideal day technique, then they're going to struggle. And then oftentimes they feel overwhelmed, which is good if you're trying to make them feel overwhelmed. You know, ask them what they want when they don't know. Just do what you were planning on doing to them anyway. And then blame it all on them. Gaslighting someone is so much fun. Like, consensually, of course, but I'm finding a lot of girls are really into that. I suspect it's something to do with the... The idea that when you are sort of imposing your will on someone else like that, there is a sense of certainty that comes along with that. And that's what they want. They want to know for certain. They don't know for certain themselves so they need someone else to know for certain and they lay latch onto that and they find that extremely sexually gratifying that's my personal experience with it anyway but yes what you do is you write down your own contract in whatever format you feel com- whatever format you want not whatever format you feel comfortable with just basically stream of consciousness the stuff because as a dominant I'm going to have things that are important to me and as a submissive they're going to have things that are important to them or as a person in the in the relationship I'm going to have things that are important to me as a person in the relationship they're going to have things that are important to them and it's usually when you clear your mind of distractions the first thing that that come up that are the most present in the back of your mind so if you're a dominant you might be thinking about um fidelity safety pleasure um where the focus of the relationship is. As a submissive, you might be thinking about, you know, I want him to tell me to make his coffee in a very particular way, or I want him to control what I dress in, or how I... Lately, I've been really getting into women with large shoe collections, not because I'm a shoe guy or a foot guy, but they're just a marvelously flexible accessory, you know? Like a proper pair of shoes, the right pair of shoes can really just make an outfit shine. There's one girl in particular I'm thinking of there. But yes, that's another approach you can use, is you write out, just stream of consciousness, what you want to have in the contract, in the relationship, right? Use those three tools that I talked about, the attributes method, the inversion technique, and the ideal day, to figure out sort of where you want to go with that. And then basically just swap. You're like, okay, I'm a submissive, I want these things. I'm a dominant, I want these things. Okay, distill them down into your deal breakers, you know, and figure out what your North Star or your Keystone statement is. Personally, I'm leaning towards more of a North Star approach. Like, I like that, that imagery, that, that idea of, of it being so aspirational. But it's also, it functions like a Keystone. It, it, it's what locks everything in together. The Keystone is the, the central stone at the top of an archway that allows it to function as an archway. God bless the Romans. Essentially, it serves the functions of both, so I'll probably interchangeably refer to it as, an, as a North Star or a Keystone. And then, boom, you have your Contract 2.0. Brilliant. Simple, easy, effective. Road test it for a half day, then road test it for a full day, and then, you know, do some practice runs, see what you like, see what you don't like, see what other deal breakers come up, see what things you're surprisingly okay with and actually might not be deal breakers. And then, you know, think about signing it for a week, enjoying it for a week, taking at least two weeks break, and then, you know, going deeper and deeper into it as you find that sense of mutual compatibility, desire, and 
satisfaction and joy and laughter and love and connection and children that come from a well-designed relationship. So this section was going to be a long, passionate rant as to the various and varied shortcomings of a more traditional contract style. Now all the usual notes apply. They're overly long. They're only as valuable as your ability to enforce them. You have to examine the basis from which your authority stems and see if it is in alignment with a contract. Adding that degree of formality to a relationship with someone that is not yet fully independent can cause dependencies and a backward slide into a less capable, less useful, less spontaneous, less adventurous, less magical relationship. One of the worst side effects of an overly strict contract is the loss of that spontaneity that makes the relationship so beautiful in the first place. A contract should be arranged in such a way that it is liberating and freeing and empowering, arranged in such a way that it provides movement forward and the impetus for the constant enjoyment of the relationship. Now tempering constant enjoyment with the knowledge that nothing is ever perfect and even good feelings fade over time. It's the contrast between good and bad that make both meaningful. So nothing is ever perfect 100% of the time and a contract can't make a relationship perfect. So there's another thing that's worth mentioning and an approach that I've used myself in the past which is why I record these podcast episodes over several days so that I can think about them and make sure I don't miss anything. The approach is that you have your submissive write the ideal contract that they think they should be under. And then you as the dominant write the ideal contract that you think that you should be under. Now the old approach then would be to try to combine the two um, and simplify it. But the best way I've found to utilize that approach of elicitation from your submissive, which is a very effective approach, by the way, uh, is to actually then combine those two things, figure out what the deal breakers are, and then transform it into a contract 